Welcome to episode 342 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Alright guys, welcome along to episode 342 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. How you going mate? I am pretty good. How about you? I'm really good as well. That's good to hear. Seems like just like last week. It does. <laughs> just seems like last week. The sun's not up. Oh, the sun's up now. It's not really. It's not really. No. It's kind of cloudy today. Rail day. Yeah. How was your, how's your Christmas Bevan? Oh, it was amazing. Good. Best Christmas ever. Good. How was yours? Sensational. Best ever? Yeah. Yep. And New Year's Eve last night. Holy moly. Oh, was it was New Year's last night, was it? It was. Today's New Year's Day. Did Happy get, New Year. Happy 2013. Did you have a passion midnight? Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, really? Yeah. What was the name? Yeah. <laughs> it was that virgin you got for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Good times. Rock and roll. I'm talking is proudly brought to you by... Coffeesfy.com. Um, Should be kicking into that on New Year's Day exactly, today. Wake exactly. Exactly. You pre-order it for next year. Athlinks.com. Yes, and then don't worry, you'll probably not be racing on New Year's Day, but if you do, put it on there. An extreme endurance. And then you probably need a bit of an immune boost right now. There are, there are quite a few New Year's Day races, running, running races and things like that, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, yeah. Just yeah. kind of like for fun? Yeah, it's sort of 5Ks, things like that. Yeah. You could do a beer mile. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be a race organiser getting stuff sorted on the 1st of January, I tell you that. No. Oh. Anyway, in this week's show. There is no news. There is no news. And there's not much really in this week's show, is there? Oh, come on. Well, no, there's a lot. Okay, here we go. Oh, it's just don't have the show notes in front of me. This yeah. week's show, we've got Paul Newsom from Swim Smooth. Yes. He's always great to have on the show. We've yeah. got Dawson for the best of the year. Yes, highlights, best races, best athletes. Best performances. Wherever he sits. Yep. And then we're going to do another fitness behaviour. Nice. All good. So let's get into it. Yeah. Oh, do you just want to get straight into it? Straight into it. Oh, coffee's a why. Oh, do you want to talk sponsor yeah, first? Yeah, coffee's a why. We've been for two minutes. It's okay. People <laughs> love it. Okay, coffeesofhawaii.com <laughs> now if you if you, if you're not a coffee drinker they've got all their teas as well Herbal well john teas, i do like a tea yeah yeah do like a cup of tea so they've got they've got quite a wide variety on there do you know what happened to me overnight john what i lost my tea mug oh no i know look at that mug over there see that big mug there oh dear that's not a tea mug yeah, it is well it's a pretty big bloody mug <laughs> i know and i couldn't find it broke my heart i ended up getting the jar yeah that worked out uh so there's a wide variety of teas on there all these different lemongrass ones lemongrass leaf. nice um i've got a gift tin that'd be a good one if you get it for a present where you get uh, three different sorts and lemongrass is like really refreshing when i went to bali if you ever go to bali it rocks because it's really cheap for massages ten dollars for an hour and a half yeah nice <laughs> so i got a massage every day and what you do is they do your feet first you feel like you know like you're bloody you're a king yeah because you sit down you put your feet in front of you and they give you some lemon grass tea and you're drinking that yeah. and you're getting all kind of refreshed and that and they're making nice. your feet feel good and you lie down they massage you for an hour and a half nice. 10 bucks yeah nice sweet <sighs> that was a win-win so get, get your teas you got jasmine blossom green tea you got oh. lavender tisan um, i think that the thing with a lot of those teas as well is at first when you try them you go Ugh. and then you give them a couple of times and you go oh yeah yep. you're into it yep so check it out, coffeesofwire.com. Got the Tisan Molokai styles down there. I think it's how you pronounce it, isn't it? Tisan? Yeah. Tisan? Tisan. 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 Um, Tisan sounds better because it sounds like tea. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So check it out. You get obviously get all your coffee, but also get your teas. Yep. Coffeesofwire.com. Coffeesofwire, best coffee in the world, but also 
It's a pretty good tea. There you go. Here we go. Righty ho, we're very uh, happy to have on our, it's going to be our New Year's Day show, um, Paul Newsom from Swim Smooth. That's Newsom with an E, with not without an E this time. So uh, I think second or third time on the show. So welcome back, Paul. Thanks very much, John. It's uh, great to be back on the show. I suppose you guys are uh, just uh, finishing up with Ironman Western Australia a few weeks ago. How, how was the day for that? That's correct. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty uh, pretty good day down there. As usual on the run, uh, a lot of the athletes tended to struggle a little bit with the heat. Um, it had been a little bit gusty on the bike as well, but um, no, it was a great day. And uh, we um, actually just after the after the particular event, um, Britta, who um, who actually won the event in the, in the hmm. female category, she was actually down for a session with us on uh, on the Friday after the race, looking lean, mean, fighter machine. She did excellent on the on the day, and uh, just looking to try and improve her swim times now from around about sixty two minutes down to the uh, mid. Hopefully, good. Okay, is she a regular over with you guys? Uh, no, it's the first time we've actually seen her, but um, hopefully, just trying to do a little bit of work, um, trying to tune up her swim stroke and uh, and take it from there. You know, perfect. Um, I think one of the things we touched on last time um, when we when we had you on was, you know, we're obviously a lot of the guys are focusing in on TSS scores and things like that on on training peaks these days, and and we sort of started a, a discussion around um, your sort of CSS. So I was keen to sort of um, you know maybe just go over that again, especially when some guys are either you know looking to focus on their swimming over during the off season, or for us Southern Hemisphere athletes um, looking to crank crank their swimming up for um, for you know Ironman races later in the year or any tri races. So can you explain again to us um, what CSS is and um, and and how you go about working it out and and then sort of how people can implement that into their training. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the first thing to sort of really point out is uh, back in 2006, I was, like many people, I was actually sort of inspired by reading uh, the Training with Power book by uh, Hunter Allen and, and Andy Coggan. And I uh, was actually lucky in early 2007 to go over to Boulder and Colorado and meet uh, Hunter over there and just, um, you know, run some ideas past him, not just with respect to, uh, to biking, of course, but also with, uh, with the development of swimming and the swimming TSS thing, which is what we talked about last, on the last show. Um, so from that, you know, I, I was got sort of inspired with the whole FTP thing, functional threshold power, and just how simple it was to actually test for that with a 20-minute time trial or, you know, if you're really brave and go for an hour time trial and actually just work out your average power from that. So I figured um, over the years I've used, you know, like five or six levels for swim training, but in reality, um, you know, the most important point to know, like in the biking, is what that FTP is, or in this case, um, a similar test that's actually been used since the early 90s is, is a test for critical swim speed, and that's CSS. So uh, just in the same sort of way as um, functional threshold power is easy to test for, so too is CSS. And um, in a nutshell, CSS um, basically equates to what the athlete should be able to maintain for a 1500 meter time trial so it's the sort of average pace for the 1500 meter time trial and um, a clear determinant of how well somebody's going to go in a uh, in an endurance event basically now of course the the easy thing to do would be to get somebody to just do a 1500 meter time trial but um, like Andy Corgan talks about in the book um, it's you know how often you can get your athletes to do a 1500 meter time trial you know every four to six weeks and truly give a good reflection of their uh, of their abilities is is open to debate so the the actual test for css is to have the athlete do a 400 meter time trial and then either a 50 meter or 200 meter time trial mm-hmm. um, 50 meter time trial has been used um historically but um just in recent times we've actually graduated a little bit more to the 200 meter test 
Um, and in a nutshell, the nice thing about doing these two tests as opposed to just having a 1500 meter time is that um, very roughly the 400 meter time will show you how good the athlete is aerobically and the 200 meter time will show you how good they are anaerobically. So sometimes when people um, do the test and we have a, a page on our website where you can simply um, put in the details for both those times and it will actually spit out a, a pace per 100 meters which is your critical swim speed um, sometimes people get uh, erroneous results so for example an athlete who maybe can swim um, 400 meters in let's say six minutes but it can only do 200 meters in let's say two minutes 50 if that same athlete um, was to actually race against somebody who could also do six minutes for 400 meters, but was actually a little bit faster on the 200. Let's say they could do, let's say they had a bit of a sprinting background and could do just over two minutes 40. Mm. Well, the athlete with the slower 200 meter time, ironically enough, would actually end up having the faster CSS pace. So that's what confuses people sometimes. What they're simply showing you is that the rate of drop off between a 200 meter swim and a 400 meter swim. Um, is for the uh, for the athlete with the um, with the faster 200 meter time is much greater than that swimmer with the slower 200 meter time. Mm-hmm. Still with me, <laughs> rather. Yeah. Uh, so so basically, uh, what that sort of uh, looks like is if you were to plot that on a graph, um, CSS pace actually looks at the gradient between the two. So if if an athlete has a fairly close 200 and 400 meter time, it actually shows you that they're actually quite aerobic. So for things like Ironman training, etc., that is what you want from your athlete. You want somebody who can, you know, hold a sustainably high pace, which is as close as possible to their um, to their CSS pace, their fifteen hundred meter time. And um, and what we're actually seeing with some of the world's best um, Ironman athletes, let's say for example, you might they might have a, um, a CSS pace in the region of about one twelve to one fifteen per hundred meters for some of the faster guys out there. You know, they might actually be able to hold within about three or four seconds of that um, of that CSS pace over the Ironman distance, even though the Ironman distance is, is double and a bit over the 1500 meter time trial, especially when wearing a wetsuit, etc. You know, so um, so these guys can actually hold a very very high sustainable pace for a long period of time. Whereas somebody who's maybe a little bit less trained, um, hasn't got that sort of endurance capacity, hasn't done the sort of same sort of aerobic training then you might be expecting more in the region of a 10-second drop-off between their CSS pace and their, and what they can hold for Ironman distance. So have you got any sort of um, methods you've, you, you use personally in terms of determining that sort of more that Ironman speed? I mean, you've just mentioned there the pro athletes actually being able to, to maintain a pretty pretty high speed in terms of um, how close they can stick to their CSS what about for you know your, your typical age group and then maybe your slower age groupers how do you as a coach go about determining what their sort of Ironman pace is for, for training yes yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question because um, like I said the, the, the first thing to obviously work out is that CSS pace and, um, and to maybe look at when you do the 400 and the 200 is to look at the rate of drop off between the two of them so if you do have, happen to have somebody who has got quite a high drop-off between the two, essentially somebody who's maybe got a bit more of a sprinty background or hasn't got any sort of endurance capacity, then what you'd actually be doing then is actually sort of making sure that um, you factor in quite a bit of um, CSS pace and just slightly below that, let's say up to around about six or eight seconds per 100 metres slower than that, and, uh, and getting them to do quite a few repetitions at that pace. So a classic, very, very simple Ironman set. Um, we call it the red wrist set um, over here in, uh, in WA. It's a very basic set, which many coaches will be familiar with, is to get the athlete to do 10 times 400 meters. 
So um, what I'd encourage the athlete to then do is do the first four times 400 at CSS plus six seconds per 100. So let's say, for example, the athlete had a CSS pace of 145 per 100. Then obviously what you're encouraging them to do is then hold 151 per 100 for that first set of four with just maybe 20 seconds rest between each one. So it's a, it's a steady pace, but it's, it's also the pace where you can't totally switch off because you're still aware that you're actually working reasonably hard. Um, the athlete would then do another three times 400 meters to bring them up to seven at CSS plus five. So one second per 100 faster than the previous set. Then they'd do another two at CSS plus four. And then finally, um, a final 400 meters at CSS plus three. Now, even though that's still slower than threshold pace, by the time the athlete has done 4,000 meters in the pool, it's actually quite challenging to actually make that uh, that fourth and sorry that tenth and final 400 meters. And um, you know what we'd encourage athletes to do of a range of abilities is to have a go with that, identify their CSS pace, and then if they are doing Ironman, see if they can actually do that set and uh, and complete it on CSS plus three on the final 400 meters. It's a really good set. The reason we call it Red Mist is because it's you're working at a level which um, I think you know, Hunter Allen and Andy Coggan would actually refer to as like the, the sweet spot or sweet zone basically where you're just slightly below threshold pace and it's, it's a hard pace, you know it's a hard pace and what we tend to find within the squad sessions over here in Perth, we run this same sort of session every, uh, every Wednesday morning is that it's very easy to become a little bit, a little bit narky with other swimmers within the lane or within the squad when you're working at that pace where you're just sort of feeling, starting to feel a bit uncomfortable, you know, somebody cuts in front of you or short turns you or what have you, and it just, you know, it can just sort of send, send the temperature rising a little bit. And it's <laughs> the same sort of thing that often you feel when you're in racing in the open water, when you're, you know, you're, you're out there, you're trying to do your best and, and, uh, and just, you know, people are knocking you around from side to side. It's, um, it's a really, really good set for you, for your, uh, to, uh, to have a go with John. And like I say, that, that particular set, 10 400 has been around since the, since the uh, dawn of time. But uh, just putting a little bit of a spin on it and, and adding in that CSS um, work will, uh, will really help with that. So how, how should an athlete feel once they've finished that set, you know, in terms of how stuffed they should be? Should they be pretty pretty screwed at the end of that or should they be getting out of that and going, yep, I can get out there and, and hit a pretty hard bike or it should be pretty challenging? Uh, it's a good question. I've literally just finished myself about an hour ago, that very same set, and um, I've, I've got it. I've just... I've just come up to um, like just broken through to a new level and uh, I'm actually feeling quite good about that maybe that's a placebo effect of actually feeling quite positive about it but usually you're getting to the end of it and you certainly know that you've had quite a solid workout because there's no we encourage the athletes to do no pool boy or paddle work or fins work or any sort of drilling it's just literally get in and get on with that 10 400s so yeah it does feel I guess out in terms of effort maybe you'd sort of say 8 out of 10 in terms of effort so it's not the sort of session which leaves you destroyed for the rest of the day, but it's a session where you're only just making the turnaround times um, by the uh, by the end of the end of the set. Um, over here, we use the uh, the Finnish Tempo Trainer Pro um, as a great way of ensuring that the athlete is holding exactly the sort of paces that you're looking for. Because obviously, if you're trying to get that specific, let's say let's say somebody has a, a CSS pace of uh, one thirty per hundred. Um, what we do with the tempo train is actually plug it into 22.5 seconds and uh, all, the ha- all the athlete has to simply do is make sure that each time the beeper beeps, i.e. every 22 and a half seconds, they're at each 25 meter marker. Mm-hmm. You can then take it down by a quarter of a second for when they drop down to 129s and so on and so forth and it just really helps them to gauge their effort and you know, in that respect it's a really good pacing, uh, pacing exercise as well. 
But um, just again, if, if any of you listeners are thinking about trying this, what I'd encourage them to do is, like I say, start off with the CSS test. Um, give that a go for, for the first week, see how they go with it. And then what I've been doing personally myself over the last sort of uh, 12, 12 weeks or so, I'm uh, currently building up for a 20K swim at the end of February and then also the Manhattan Island swim in, uh, in June. So I'm trying to get really fit for that. Um, is every two weeks what I'll do is I'll drop all my times at all those levels by one second. So I'll have one week, basically let, let's say week one, where I, I try the new level. And then the following week, I'll try it again, but just try and make the whole set feel slightly easier, slightly more doable as my fitness and technique improves. And then on the third week, then I'll bump it all up, make it all one second faster. And then again, on week four, just plateau off at that and then slowly step it up. And um, I've been able, in terms of my own times and stuff, I've been able to take that from um, starting on the first four at 125s per 100, now down to 120s and finishing at 117. So in the course of 10 weeks, you know, I've been able to knock off five seconds per 100, which when you're swimming that sort of speed, is, you know, it's, it's, quite a good, um, it's quite a good improvement in that 10-week period. Nice. Sounds like you're coming out of retirement. Um, one, one, one thing we uh, we thought might be interesting to do, given it's it's a new year and and um, we don't have um, swim coaches on the on the show that often, but we often get the same sort of questions being um, being thrown around, and I'm sure you get some of the, the same ones, Paul, all the time on email. Um, so we thought we might run through a few of the uh, most common questions I know that I get, and then Paul, if you've got any at the end, we'll uh, we'll throw a couple more on there. But one that that comes up time and time again. And, and, and I'm sure you've addressed it many times um, but does kick matter and, and firstly does it matter for, for triathletes and secondly if you are doing any kick in training uh, should you do it with a kickboard or without a board? Yeah it's a really good question I, I think a lot of athletes over the years have been a little bit thrown off course here I've come from a pure swimming background got into triathlon when I was about 16 I remember one of the first magazines that I picked up and looked at, it, it was asking this very question. It said, you're a triathlete. And their, their strap line was, you're a triathlete, don't worry about your kick. And the whole idea being that you'd actually then save energy for the bike and for the run. Um, obviously, with the different wetsuits that are out there available, the buoyancy of the wetsuit lifting the legs up, the whole theory was that, you know, try and save as much energy for the bike and run as you possibly can. Now, that's really only part of the picture as I see it. Um, we do, or I do, believe that uh, that kick certainly matters, um, but more so in terms of actually reducing the, the amount of drag that the legs typically create, as opposed to trying to add a lot more propulsion. Um, studies of Ian Thorpe, you remember, size 17 feet, a monster of a man sort of thing, with a, a really well known for his outboard type of uh, outboard motor type of kick. Studies have actually shown that he only generated around about 11% of his entire propulsion from that leg kick. So, you know, when people think to themselves, oh, I need to add a, add a stronger kick, so it's going to give me a lot more propulsion. In reality, it's not going to give you too much more propulsion, but it will fatigue you quite quickly. Hence that original article, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So in terms of actually how does the kick matter? Well, it matters in terms of actually trying to reduce the drag of the legs. And probably one of the most common things that we see when swimmers are, um, or triathletes are, uh, are swimming along, um, a lot of triathletes tend to have very stiff ankles. So they tend to be in what we call like a dorsiflex position with the ankles at around about 90 degrees in some severe cases when they're kicking. That can create quite a huge amount of drag and almost encourages the athlete to kick a lot from their knee, thus creating it extra drag when the knee is dropped very, very low in the water. So we'd encourage all athletes to think about just pointing their toes out behind them and actually turning them slightly in so they're a little bit pigeon-toed. If they could think about actually brushing the big toes gently against each other, then that's going to help to stop some of the scissoring of the legs, which tends to happen as a result of a crossover in front of the head. 
Um, maybe we'll come back to that point about crossover because it's probably one of those common things that I do mm. see with athletes crossing over and then the result being that the legs splay kick apart and lose a balance and create drag, etc. But so yeah, to answer that question, really, kick does matter, yes, um, but more so in terms of trying to reduce any sort of drag from the legs and just sort of surviving really with more of like a, a gentle flutter kick as opposed to a monstrously strong uh, propeller kick, if you like, as they're going along. Um, in terms of the answering the question about the uh, the kickboard, we at our squad over here in Perth, we never actually use kickboards. Um, we used to do many many years ago, but what I found is over the years is if we're going to actually practice any kickboard and uh, any any pure kicking work, I'll get the athletes to actually do it in more of a torpedo streamlined position, one hand on top of the other, and focus on stretching out. So they'll either kick on their front or on their back, or with some of our side kicking exercises to work on posture and alignment then obviously kicking on the side we do quite a bit of work with the fins on that can actually help to loosen up the ankles for uh, and improve the flexibility of the, the ankles for kicking um but we don't tend we don't generally tend to do any of the uh, the work with the with the kickboard out in front and one of the reasons i sort of suggest why we don't tend to do that is a lot of the athletes who are actually likely to be thinking that kick is holding them back are the athletes who tend to swim with a very low sinky leg position. Mm-hmm. Now, if you add further buoyancy at the front end of the stroke, I give them a kickboard, it lifts them even higher at the front and sinks the legs even further at the back, so thereby putting them in a very sort of unnatural position. So uh, generally speaking, we don't use kickboards, but uh, we do we do do a lot of kicking work, albeit a lot, of, a lot of it is sort of inadvertently working on other aspects of the stroke or maybe doing some side kicking to work on posture and alignment. And the athlete is actually working on their kick without really even realizing that's what they're doing. Nice. I totally yes. agree with that ankle, ankle flexibility. It's a killer for some people. Um, well, there's so much going around these days in terms of what people should be doing, you know, with with their recovery, with their arms. You know, some people are saying straight. You've just got to go straight arms. Just throw them over there. Obviously, the classic is sort of the, is the high elbow. Um, where do you guys sort of sit in terms of the swim smooth approach to what people should be doing with their with their recoveries? It's straight arm. Is it sort of uh, horses for courses, or are you sort of more traditional in terms of the the high elbow um well firstly i I think one of the things that we always try and look at is the looking at the individual and and, you know if somebody's got um for example if somebody's very very stiff in their upper back and shoulders and the thoracic upper thoracic region then we definitely encourage them to go with a slightly straighter arm recovery over the top of the water um even though the textbook high elbow recovery freestyle a la you know um ian thorpe grant hackett the real, um, Sun Yang, those sort of uh, great 1,500-meter freestylers and 400 freestylers, even though that classic high elbow recovery looks very pretty within the pool, um, sometimes the, the hand itself can actually get so close to the surface of the water, like almost like if they're doing like the finger trail drill, that in the rough open water at the start of a triathlon event, that can actually be a disadvantage to be swimming like that. We also find that the, the classic high elbow recovery when uh, when wearing a wetsuit actually forces when the athlete tries to really force the elbow very very high they end up sort of working against the neoprene um the, the stiffness if you like in the neoprene of the wetsuit and it can actually be, lead to quite quite early premature fatiguing of the shoulders um so certainly we encourage a slightly straighter arm recovery than than what might be your sort of conventional high elbow recovery um the classic example of this is the um i think i may mention on the last time i was on the show is that the very first athlete that i ever started working with was, was a guy called harry wiltshire um who's still very much racing on the on the itu circuit if you've ever seen harry swimming he swims with a very classic almost like windmill stroke very very straight arm recovery especially on his left and um, some recent video footage that we've just been looking at from the Blenheim Triathlon, 
just before the London Olympics, there was actually three of the guys. We had uh, Alistair Brownlee leading out of the water, Jonathan Brownlee in second place, Harry in third place, and all those guys are all swimming with a very, very straight arm recovery over the top of the water. It allows them to get quite close to swimmers to the side of them to maximise the benefit of drafting, which you know can save the athlete up to 38% of their energy expenditure. And certainly in rough, uh, rough waters or at the start of a race, it can also be an advantage in terms of getting the arms clear of the water. Now there are some athletes who've got amazing flexibility in their shoulders, and none of that maybe none of that would apply. And they've got, come from more of a swimming pure, pure, sorry pure pool swimming gap background, and they can maintain that high elbow recovery, and it still looks and feels fine with a wetsuit on. But even those athletes, when it gets a little bit rough, and still encourage a slightly higher uh, hand clearance of the water. So yeah, I think even though we look at horses for courses and, and the individual, definitely for triathlon, open water swimming, would encourage a, a, a straighter arm recovery for sure. Cool. So that's, um, you know, looking at obviously above the water, um, below the water, again, there's, uh, people are getting confused in terms of what they should be doing. You know, the, the classic is, is more to go through a bit of a, an, an S pull with your, with your stroke. And now there's other people just saying, you know, shorten it up and just rip it through your, um, you know, get your catch, rip it through and then not really pushing through to your, um, through to your, through to your quads or anything like that where, where do you guys sit in terms of the um you know what the again horses for courses but for, for most people are we are we talking an s or are you guys more of the school where you you know, quick catch rip it through and then uh, and pull your hand out pretty quickly rather than pushing through all the way to your thigh i think it's it's obviously important uh, i mean a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to reduce drag and get themselves swimming faster by reducing the amount of effort it takes to cut through the water. But on the flip side of the equation, propulsive efficiency is very, very important as well. So it makes makes sense to actually spend quite a bit of time developing the catch and pull through phase in the freestyle stroke. Um, obviously, back in the early and mid-70s, um, that's when the whole S-pull shape came about. And basically what it looked at was it was looking at trying to actually increase the length of the relative pull pathway underneath the body by getting the swimmer to scoop the hand out to the side, scoop it back into the middle, and then scoop it out past the hip. It was all based on a two-dimensional analysis of the freestyle stroke, looking at the, the Bernoulli theory in terms of actually um, trying to lengthen out the stroke, like I say, by taking a longer pathway underneath the water. <laughs> Subsequent to that, though, coaches then started to talk about the whole benefit of body rotation and how that affected the body in three dimensions. And whilst it's fair to say that even those who those great swimmers, um, I'm thinking of people like Rebecca Adlington, who we use on a regular basis, double Olympic gold medalist, even though she will actually be focusing on pressing the water directly back behind her, there will be some S-curve or S-shape underneath the water. But the important thing I think that we stress is that we don't actively ask the swimmers to think about that. We'd encourage them to think about pressing back, or almost as though they are pressing back along a long straight line underneath the body. Um, people get into trouble with the S-pull shape when they, like many things in the freestyle stroke, when they try and exaggerate it. So over the years, we've seen a lot of people reading that they should do an S-pull shape, and then they're literally pressing really far out wide, which shifts their hips in the opposite direction, and pressing back the other way, and they end up snaking down the pool. Um, what also sort of uh, preceded the S-pull shape was to encourage the swimmers to enter into the water with a thumb first entry. So they're already ready to set up for that outward sweep. Mm-hmm. Now, over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, um, my wife's actually a physiotherapist and a lot of the biomechan- biomechanics research that we've looked at stems or shows that a thumb first entry into the water and excessive internal rotation of the shoulder joint can be one of the leading causes of shoulder pain and impingement. 
So if you're looking to try and get your athletes to be as consistent as possible in their training to avoid injuries, etc., it doesn't really, in my opinion, doesn't really make sense to still be encouraging them to do something which people were talking about back in the 70s, entering thumb first and then pressing out if you know that that has a potential to damage damage the shoulders. And I think, you know, if you've got an elite athlete who's got great flexibility, good body rotation, etc., then maybe they can get away with a little bit more of a thumb first entry into the water. But if we're dealing with triathletes with no limited or no swimming background, um, sort of you know, in the age range of about 30 to 50 years old, then that sort of lack of flexibility and mobility in the shoulders and an upper back region, it could spell disaster if you sort of encourage them to come into the, into the water thumb first and then pressing out and pressing back like so. So um, to sort of summarize what we would teach them, we'd first and foremost, we'd encourage a, a fingertip first entry into the water. Um, for the swimmer to still lengthen and extend forward at that point as they enter into the water, but to avoid the classic mistake of actually pausing and gliding in that position too long. Because what we tend to see with the countless video analysis that we do is for swimmers as they tend to reach forward and try and minimize uh, the number of strokes that they're taking per length is to actually drop the wrist, drop their elbow and actually essentially pushing the water forwards essentially pushing them backwards uh, that wouldn't set up for a good catch and pull through at all so we focus on the fingertips entering and extending forward into the water with their body rotation tipping the fingertips down just to sort of subtly lead them into that nice high elbow catch and pull through and for the hand to then pass underneath the shoulder as it presses water back behind them and actually and actually finishing off around about the hip level now, again, another sort of um, common misconception, if you like, if we're talking misconceptions, is that a lot of people look at the great um, pool swimmers and say, you know, they really finish off, like you were saying before, like down at the quads and flicking right the way back and really emphasizing that back part of the stroke. But in reality, most of these guys exit the water with some degree of softness at the elbow. So the elbow isn't fully extended. If we're talking about injuries, etc., what we do see on a reasonable occurrence, but not quite so much as shoulder pain, is swimmers getting um, what we call medial epicondylitis or golfer's elbow, and that can be due to them focusing on extending too far back at the uh, at the back end of the stroke, and certainly something to uh, to watch out for. I think if you, um, yeah, we've got various articles on our uh, on our website under this catch section. It's you know obviously listening to what I'm saying about that, it's it's a little bit hard to visualise all of these little things, but on the uh, on the website we've got some useful um uh video files and uh and also some um some great um great video stills and stuff to just sort of explain the positioning of the arms and what what you should be looking for underneath the water perfect sounds good um you you talked earlier about kickboards and and your use or lack of use these days and you also mentioned some of your the finished products that that you use so when it comes to paddles again some coaches are very black and white with regards to paddles and and pool boys and say waste of time don't use them don't even bring them near the pool um same with pool boys you're having a holiday if you've got a pool boy on bands there's different theories on that so just around those sort of um paddles pool boy and bands um What's your sort of thinking around them? Well, first and foremost, there's many, many paddles on the market. On you know, on our website, I think we I think we retail about four or five different pairs for for four or five different aspects of the freestyle stroke. I've certainly grown up uh, in the past with doing you know through the various programs that I've been involved with as an athlete myself, doing lots of pool boy and paddle work and lots of bands work as well. And there's definitely room for it, I believe, within any swim program. I think the problem comes though when um, if you're trying to get the athlete, for example, to do a very specific set, let's go back to that red mist set, the 10-400s. 
that's supposed to be very aerobically challenging. Now, arguably, when a, an athlete, especially an athlete with low sinky legs, if they pop a pool boy between the legs just to simply make themselves faster or to try and keep up with the swimmer in front of them, what they invariably do is change their body position completely and ultimately um, encourage their uh, the, the heart rate will drop a little bit because obviously they're working a little bit easier through the water and they might not be getting quite the same sort of uh, tra training effect that they're actually looking for. Now, that being said, obviously, um, using a pool boy can obviously simulate the, the benefits or what it feels like, I guess, with the buoyancy distribution of a wetsuit, lifting the legs up in the water. So we actually do a reasonable amount of pool boy and paddle work um, in, the, uh, in the pool within our training session. But there's always a very specific reason behind it. I, um, I made a huge mistake when I was probably on about 16 years old, just leading into my first 1500 meter race. And I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make myself really, really strong. I'm going to use a pool boy in every single session, get really big shoulders and stuff. I knew, clearly I knew nothing about what was going on at that point. And um, I just spent probably six months training up for this 1500 meter event over in France. And um, it was a pool based event. And what I was actually doing Whilst I might have been, might have been making myself a little bit stronger in the shoulders, swimming is not really limited by that strength, but at least not, uh, not, not so much. Um, but obviously, it is limited by your aerobic capacity. And basically, what I was been doing was, I was thinking I was training really well, I was hitting some good times, but my heart rate was never really getting up there. And sure enough, as soon as I got into this race, set off too quick, blew up, my legs dropped down in the water, and uh, I got lapped three or four times, I think, in a 50 meter. In a 50-meter pool over this 1500, it was a, it was a very, very bad, uh, very, very bad experience, but one that I learned from greatly. So, you know, I, went, I sometimes feel like a bit of a stickler on the side of the pool if I tell the guys you're actually just sneakily reaching for that pool boy. We sometimes even have to lock up those pool boys when it's during a set where I really don't want them to use it. But equally, there are many, many occasions when you might be working on developing the catch and pull through. You might be doing some sculling or some doggy paddle work, and a pool boy can really be very, very beneficial. So don't lock them away, but certainly know why you're using them and uh, and, you, and you know using them in the uh, in the context of what you're trying to develop your stroke for. Uh, on the uh, just coming back to the paddles thing, then the. Um, over the years, paddles themselves have had a bad reputation for causing shoulder pain and injury, but it's not normally the paddle that's at fault. It's normally poor technique combined with the larger surface area of the paddle, which just exacerbates that poor form in the water. So many of these paddles tend to be very, very large in surface area and maybe have you know multiple straps to actually bind the hand to the uh, to the paddle. Unfortunately, if the swimmer does enter into the water, for example, thumb first or presses out to the side or pushes down with a very straight arm recovery, which would be bad for the shoulders, that's just going to be sort of exacerbated by the paddle. Many of the paddles that we're using these days, and uh, just to use a, a couple of uh, finished paddles as an example, we use um, what's called the Finnis Freestyler, which is a great paddle designed like an arrowhead with a single strap for the middle finger. On the underside of the paddle is a keel, and the paddle's actually designed to sort of ensure that the swimmer, as they enter into the water, that they don't cross over in front of their head or that they don't enter thumb first. Because the paddle, if you do that, the paddle will simply fall off the palm of the hand and uh, it will feel very, very awkward indeed. So it's like a corrective paddle as opposed to one which is going to um, going to um, give you a load of power or encourage you to like really power up and down the pool. Um, there's another paddle that's just come out called the Finnis Agility Paddle, which is my current favorite paddle. It's really good for working on the catch and pull through phase of the freestyle stroke. 
So everything I've just been mentioning there about maintaining that elbow bent underneath the water. So you extend forward, tip the fingertips down, bend the elbow and press back with the elbow bent at around about 100 to 120 degrees. Well, this particular paddle is actually designed specifically for that underwater phase of the freestyle stroke. Again, it will sort of fall around or flop off the hand if, uh, if you're doing anything untoward underneath the water. Um, we recently ran a, uh, a coach's course over in Cardiff and we had uh, one of the UK's best 1500 metre swimmers, a PB of 1451, attend that clinic just to do some demos for us. And he was actually quite surprised to see that underneath the water on the video analysis that we did for him, that as he was reaching forward with his left hand, the fingertips were actually rising up towards the surface and essentially applying a bit of a braking effect. These paddles, if you do that at the front end of the stroke, will actually fall off. And he felt them falling off as soon as he used them straight away. But given how proficient he was in the water, he recognized that something was wrong. He modified his stroke, the paddle stayed on, and it gave him that sort of positive reinforcement that he was doing the right thing. So when we use paddles within our squad, we generally use them to actually refine uh, technique and, uh, and improve the way the swimmer's actually pulling through underneath the body. Again, with my, with my more serious athletes or more elite athletes who maybe got a little bit more of a background, we'll still use the paddles for a little bit of power and strength endurance work but uh, a little bit more less so than I would have done maybe in, in previous years uh, as myself as an athlete. So when that, when that British guy knocks another 30 seconds off his, uh, his 1500 metre time you'll be, uh, you'll be claiming that one. <laughs> Just to sort of, you know, for the coaches that are on the course and also the swimmers on that particular day, for them to actually see, because obviously you'd think of somebody who could swim under 15 minutes for 1500 to be absolutely perfect, but it just sort of goes to show that there is no real one true perfect stroke. And, um, you know, sort of seeing this guy in action and seeing a couple of little errors here and there, but uh, obviously then being able to actually just tune them up and modify them, it was, it was really good for everyone to see that, definitely. So I think probably one of the main things you're saying there about paddles is uh, the, the brands or the, the, the types of paddles that you basically strap your hand into place are probably going to be less optimal than uh, than the ones that have got sort of, you know, either just a, a fingertip hole or something fairly minimal in terms of uh, of keeping them on your hands. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the, the new agility paddles doesn't even it doesn't have any straps at all. There's just like a little loop for your thumb to go through. Yeah. Uh, so they're quite a cool design, and obviously you haven't got any problems with like perishing uh, straps or losing your straps or anything like that. So they they are really quite uh, quite good. But you know, I'd, I'd encourage anyone. I mean, if you, most people have you know, if they're swimming in squads or they have some friends who've got a range of different paddles, I'd always encourage swimmers to have a range of different paddles just to try out and and see what works best for them. Um, down in our squad, we have. We probably have 10 different styles of paddles and um, we'll often have like a fun day on a Friday afternoon, a Friday morning and um, I'll get the guys to almost do like a circuit session and actually just experience the different sensation that they get with those paddles just to show them what they, what they can each do for their strokes. Nice. Now, you obviously spend a lot of the time um, every single day of the week um, on, on pool deck, and you will have seen plenty of athletes coming and going. Um, you, in terms of the common, really common faults you, you see, you, you mentioned sort of crossing over. Um, is that probably the, the number one thing that you see going on in terms of where athletes can, can make that improvement? Do you know what the, the the most common thing we see, and, it, and it's a very very basic thing indeed. And you know, certainly that other people or other coaches might have different opinions on this, but it's something that we do have a lot of experience with, and uh, and some good success stories from. Is is simply the fact that a lot of swimmers have maybe been taught to hold on to their breath underneath the water, 
or they might be doing that as a natural reflex to uh, in, in case they're sort of panicking and feeling like they're going to run out of air. Now, the problem this actually creates is it adds way too much buoyancy in the front part of the stroke, so in the chest and lung region, when the swimmer's actually holding on to their breath. So for those swimmers who have very low-sinky natural legs, uh, low-sinky legs, sorry, in the water, which, you know, let's face it, many triathletes and Ironman athletes do have that, if they're holding onto the breath underneath the water, then it just simply compounds that and lifts the front end even higher and sinks the legs down even further back. I often say to these athletes, you know, you'd never ever hold onto your breath when you're out bike riding and running because um, obviously breathing in and out is what keeps you aerobic. And the same thing wants to apply with your swimming as well. So, I mean, it's a very, very simple thing. Get, get yourself sort of filmed, see if you're holding onto your breath. If you are, then focus on actually exhaling underneath the water. And it's not simply a case of suddenly blurt it all out or uh, just force it out underneath the water. That exhalation process wants to feel like you're actually sighing in the water for it to be slow and controlled and, and a nice release. Now, I know over in the UK, through the, through the national system over there, they do encourage um, swimmers to hold on to the breath because they say it improves your buoyancy. Well, I've got no argument with that. It does improve your buoyancy, but it improves it in the wrong places for most Ironman athletes, i.e., lifts you up at the front and sinks you down at the back. So that's probably the most common fault that we see. And we can see that in any athlete at any range of ability. Ironically enough, you know, some of the fastest swimmers out there might be the biggest culprits. And uh, it might seem when I'm delivering a video analysis session to them, that it might seem like a super basic thing and something that they've probably never considered before. But even though it's very basic, it doesn't mean to say it can't make a big improvement to their, to their swimming, help to, keep, help to keep them a lot more aerobic and help to balance out their body position in the water. So, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the biggest things. And then um, over the top of the water, if we're thinking Ironman, you know, 3.8 k's in the open water, obviously the ability to be able to swim straight is very, very important indeed. And just going back to what I mentioned earlier on, we see probably 75, 80% of the swimmers that we film from directly above, looking down at their swim stroke, like from a bird's eye angle, seeing them crossing over quite significantly in front of their head. You can actually see the body weave around within the water as they do so. Um, not only does it cause weaving, but it usually has a counter response of the legs actually then scissor kicking apart, which creates a huge amount of drag and obviously then slows them down as well. So really the middle finger of each hand wants to be extending straight forward in front of the same shoulder, not crossing over in front of the head. The, the finished freestyler paddles that I mentioned beforehand, not to, not to keep giving them a plug, they are great, a great product for this, is to, is to actually pop those on and actually visualize the middle finger extending straight forward in front of the same shoulder, as is a very simple exercise, going back to the fins and the kicking uh, developments, etc., is to get the swimmer to actually kick on their side, one hand held down by the side, the other extended out in front, eyes looking down and just blowing a long stream of bubbles. But rather than actually think of this as a kicking exercise or even a body rotation exercise because the athlete's on their side, is to actually get them to think about their posture and alignment and specifically think about drawing their shoulder blades together and back, which will actually straighten out that lead arm, which then if they transfer that across into their freestyle will allow for a much straighter straight to swim we see we see athletes all the time with gps devices and i mean you cannot you can argue the the benefit of uh, sorry the accuracy of a gps device in the open water but we see swimmers very very frequently at around 50 or even up to 20 percent of the extra distance onto their swim just by weaving around all over the place so 
it makes sense to uh, to get yourself nice and straight in the water for sure and guys uh, if you're listening to this I mean uh, from, from my own coaching perspective you know, I totally agree that crossing over is a huge issue but um, the easiest way if you haven't got a coach in your area is just to get an iPad out or get something like that out and just get any sort of footage of yourself and you can often see it you don't need a coach to be standing there telling you to do it but it's um, it's it's very apparent and as, as Paul said in a lot of swimmers and, uh, and sometimes you try to make those adjustments and you know if you're telling somebody to go out to like 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock they're still crossing over if they're, if they're aiming out there so it's uh, I think what Paul's saying the video feedback is, is massive for that one I don't, I don't know if you agree with that one Paul oh, absolutely it's, it's huge because I mean the, obviously the benefit of being able to see um, see what you're doing and then you know jump back in the pool and actually try and correct that is is marvelous i mean there's a um a great product on the market and you probably i don't know if you've actually covered it on the show called and it's made by a company called lifeproof.com oh yep yep, yep they were over in kona they were dishing those out in kona absolutely brilliant they're um fantastic um waterproof housing for your iphone or your ipad um, I've got I've got both sort of thing, you know. They they obviously with the HD footage that you get from the camera, it's it's great. You can take it completely underneath the water, submerge your iPad or your iPhone. Um, it's a bit nerve wracking the first time you do it, but you can actually do that and uh, and get some underwater footage of yourself as well. So you know maybe just get a friend to stand at the end of the pool, get you get you swimming towards the camera and or shots from the side. It's a little bit less sophisticated, obviously, than the, the video analysis um, equipment that we use over here in Perth or that some of you your local swim coaches might be using but it is a, you know it is a snapshot for those of you self coach yourself to um, to get a gauge of exactly what you're doing in the water and then obviously you can make make inroads to try and actually improve that Nice. Um, well, Paul, we always get heaps of good feedback when you're on the show, so thanks again for coming on. If um, if people like what they, they hear from you in terms of, uh, we know you've got your, your swimsmooth.com in terms of uh, your swim types, for, for, it's a fantastic site for, for people trying to figure out sort of where they fit into and, and some of the common things that uh, they could be trying to address. So give, give us a bit of a plug for, for where people can find out a bit more, obviously, if they're not in Perth about trying to sort of get onto your, your way of thinking with regards to to try swimming sure well we, we just released our um, our first book it was published back in uh, in june uh, june june or july it's just come over to australia in september i believe it's just uh, just been published over here um that's it's one of the it's actually the best-selling uh, water sports book over in the uk at the moment we're told by the by the publishers but it's it's really a collection of all our um all our ideas with respect to how to actually improve somebody's uh, not just their swim technique but also the elements of css is covered in massive depth and also how to actually then refine the stroke uh, for the open water so i mean that's i guess in a nutshell that's one of the things that we're firmly of the belief is that it's not just important to look at improving your technique but you've got to have the elements balanced between the technique the specific fitness training and then how to adapt your stroke to the open water to really serve yourself as best you possibly can as an ironman athlete what's the name of that book so it's just it's literally swim smooth so you can get if you just go swimsmooth.com forward slash book you'll be able to find all the, uh, the details on that we ship we ship all around the world brilliant <laughs> brilliant um and you've also got swimtypes.com or they can find everything else at swimsmooth.com so anything else you want to give a plug there paul um 
I think just again the obviously the the technicalities of the uh, of the catch and pull through are uh, you know it can be quite in depth for a lot of people but we do have a uh, a DVD specifically on that section of the stroke called the catch masterclass and that's uh, that's a really good seller on the website and uh, if people want to visualize what it should look like and uh, and we take you through a range of different drills and exercises that they can do to actually improve that then that'll be fantastic we've got some great footage of some of the world's best swimmers on there demonstrating their catch underneath the water and it's just a really good snapshot of what you should be doing and trying to visualize we get some really good uh, feedback on that one perfect well today is january the 1st 2013 so if your new year's resolution is to try to make some progress in your swimming this year um after listening to this interview you now got all the tools to go and do it and you can go get some more of those two tools from swimsmooth.com so paul thanks again for your time thanks very much john thanks for having me on the show once uh try.com now um I think I said last week on, on last week's show, there are dealers um, around the world with SLS, um, predominantly in the States. So so if you go to slstry.com, dealers, uh, then on there, you've got heaps of places that are selling the gear all the way across the States. So you can go on there and... All right, yeah, there's so many. You can go and try it on before you buy and uh, get, your, get your sizing all, all sorted. Right, let's say you live in Delaware. Yes. You can go around and you can have a look at the... The, the Brandywine Cyclery. There you go. If you're in Florida, you can go to Triathlon. If you go to Nevada, you can go to Big Daddy's Bicycles. Do you think in Florida, Triathlon is Triathlon, but it's just with a three? I'm thinking it probably is. Yeah. Um, Amazing. And the other thing for you girls who are listening, I was on uh, Sally's Try, and they've got this little run skirt thing going on. I'll show you. Oh, yeah, they have those at the gym. Yeah. Yeah. Little, uh, squirts, they call them. Squirts. Squ- no, squats. Squats. Like in short squirt. Yes. Squirts you, oh, you know what I mean. You know, I do. They're kind of cool. It's got a little pink, pink, pink number going on there. So uh, check that out, slstry.com. I reckon you'd look pretty good in a pair of those. I think I'd look better than good. I think I'd look outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, so if you want to get any discounts from SLS, use the code IAMTALK, uh, just IAMTALK, and you get a nice healthy discount. And uh, get yourself some new kit for the new year. It's New Year's Day. So... <laughs> There we go. Sneeze already, already happened. First sneeze of the, the yep, year. Yep, New Year sneeze and yeah. yawn. <laughs> so check it all out, slstry.com. Support the guys that are supporting the show. Yeah, and they've got great apparel, guys. If you are looking for some real quality apparel, check it out. They've got really good stuff, and not just the compression gear, but also some really cool other gear as well. And um, if, yeah, people if you really like what they've got. If you're listening um, internationally outside of the States and you're unsure about shipping and all that sort of stuff, just pop them an email and, and they'll help you out in terms of sizing and let you know what shipping's going to cost. And and whatever questions same deal with all the sponsors they're always very responsive on uh, on emails so just any questions pop them an email don't ask us ask them rock and roll slstry.com right a man we've talked about a lot on the show the geek the website the geek we've talked a lot about on the show from tryrating.com yes I've got his name a million times wrong mm-hmm. but I now get it right Torsten Hrad Hrad we'll go with that so Torsten pretty good guys welcome <laughs> welcome to the show Thanks for having me. It's a great honor. As we've cited just before, we try rating. Trirating dot com, and and what's going to be coming out um, soon, as you can tell us when it is. But uh, the two thousand and twelve rating reviews. Oh, and, and he's done. So, I don't know. How, I don't know how you have any time for the rest of your life, mate, because you do such a thorough job. When, when are the when's the, the the general public going to get their eyes on this? Well. I'm shooting for end of December, but it kind of depends on when you guys are going to air the show. 
Um, but uh, end of December is what I'm shooting for. Great. We'll, we'll make sure we do it before the end of December then. We will work with yep. you. Oh, well, it'll, it'll be on the blog too, and people can register for the email list, and I'll just send some information out as long as soon as I'm finished. Great. Oh. So before, before we start getting into it, I mean, um, tell us a bit about yourself, where you're based, and, and what you do with, with regards to, to tri racing, and, um, and what motivates you to do all this stuff. Well, I'm based in uh, Germany, but I don't think that's any uh, problem at all for getting to the results or, or anything. I was just looking for a way of making things a bit more comparable. Uh, you have really fast courses like, like road and the slower courses, and I just wanted to find a way of making these different results comparable and thereby offering some kind of more objective um um, rating for for the different athletes for the different courses, and also to be able to play around a bit with uh, these numbers and predictions for upcoming races, and um, ha- having a feeling how strong the field is in these things. And I started that like a year and a half ago, almost two years, and uh, didn't put that much effort into it or that much time into it. Um, it's just that once you have the base infrastructure in place, things just need to be tended a little bit. So the system itself has been pretty stable. The numbers have been pretty stable. And it's just adding new results that come in. And then um, have you guys or other people come up with little research projects and adding to the numbers that I already have. And it's been a lot of fun. I've been getting uh, um, nice feedback from from you and other people. So for now, it's just something that I can do in in addition to my regular job, which is being an IT consultant, iOS developer, and um, so this is work-related, <laughs> yeah. but I can just use the techniques that I use in my job to for some more fun stuff than boring IT work. <laughs> what, what about your own racing? What, what do you do? Well, I, I do some uh, endurance uh, racing. Uh, I finished a couple of Ironman in 2005 to 2010. Um, for now, I'm just... You know, trying to to keep fit a little bit, not to gain too much weight, and uh, just uh, enjoy long races as as soon as is possible with with the limited amount of training that I'm able to put in at this point. Mm. So, one of the things we we always talk about is is your obviously your rating system. And for 2012, um, you you pull up your, your t- in, in the report, you pull up your top 10 times uh, or top 10 male athletes um, and I'm interested to know um, how, how far you go back with results and also how you allow for terrible um, results because we know that some athletes are a lot more consistent and they, basically, they, they hardly ever have a poor result you know Craig Alexander is a great example whilst he, he only finished what 11th or something in Kona this year it was still you know it wasn't terrible blowout it wasn't a 10 11 hour blowout like yeah. we see other athletes who might end oh. up walking the run so how do you allow for for that and also for and how do you allow for um how far back do you go with the results well i decided to start in 2005 um which is kind of a arbitrary date but i think that would be far enough back that most of the athletes racing back then are not really active anymore, so I don't have any strange effects for people starting up without um, data to to grade their results on. I think the only really good athlete that's still around from back then is is uh, Faris, who won in 2006, I think, in in Kona. Mm-hmm. But other than that, 
uh, hardly anyone, well, Cam Brown, but hardly anyone other than these are really have been active for, for that long a time mm. and are still um, top performers. So that's how far back I go, and I just had to find a date that I wanted to start collecting all the results from the different races. Um, and uh, the second question was, how do I discount for bad results? What I'm trying to do is um, get um, the really bad blowouts uh, out of the system. Um, from the top athletes, um, Andreas Relat once had a race where he just had to validate a spot for Kona and basically just walked the marathon mm. in uh, in uh, Regensburg, I think it was, uh, last year. Yep. So I have a bit of a cutoff um, in uh, determining which uh, results I'm actually going to include in my averaging out of all the different results that I'm seeing. And that, that was certainly one that was discarded. Um, other than that, um, the rating that, that I'm arriving at is a, an, an average of all the uh, adjusted results of, of the athlete. Um, favoring the newer results over the old, older results, but um, of course, if, if Crowe's bad result in in Hawaii this year uh, that threw him a bit back in the ratings, of course. So, so when you say the newer results favor them, how do you? What does that mean, and how how does that work into the their their sort of rating time? Basically, I assign a weight to each of the results, and um, the weight is larger the newer re- the result is. Right. And I played around a bit with the numbers. So, for example, if you have a five-year-old result, that'll only get a weight of about uh, 40% of one that's brand new. Cool. Okay. That makes so good sense. So, there's always a bit of a bias towards newer results, but still keeping the, re- the ratings uh, stable enough that they don't fluctuate wildly based just on the last result that, a, that an athlete had. Mm, so an athlete that's consistently improved over <clears throat> five years is going to have a more accurate time than uh, what they may have done five years ago when they first started out. It's cool. Right. right. Yeah. But uh, it, for example, athletes like, like Pete uh, Jacobs who had like only good his, his, basically his only good results were in Kona um he's a bit of bit hurt by by the system by by the rating system that I'm using because all his bad results will still be in the list hmm. and still drag his rating down and that's one of the reasons why he's not in my top 10 uh, rated athletes there you go Pete you need to pull your finger out outside of Kona we might give you a bit of sharpen up try rating system. what have you done lately <laughs> um, are you okay if we divulge uh, some of the athletes in your top 10 or are you are you Sorry. wanted to hold that back so, so we've got um, Andreas Raylert is uh, rated number one with an 8.15 and then uh, Craig Alexander second and Marino Van Holnacker is, is third. So I guess for Marino, his, um, he, <laughs> whilst he, he, he's either on or off, when he's off I guess he has a, a did not finish so his, his poor results probably don't affect him quite so badly. Yes, that's right. I, I discard DNFs and that's for an athlete like like Marino, who either finishes sub eight or doesn't finish at all, yeah. um, that's a bit bit tricky to to uh, get in. But um, what I found is there's hardly any data of DNFs for for older races around. So basically, I, I didn't see a way of uh, including that um, in in my system. Um, there, there's still room for improvement, of course. Mm-hmm. And some so of the other Marino name might be one. So that, you, that that's a bit tricky to gauge. Yeah. Um, also, 
maybe not for ratings, but that might be something for predictions where um, I need to have a closer look at how to adjust for these his high rate of DNF if I manage to collect decent data on it. Mm. So it's, it's some surprising or somewhat surprising order of other names as well. You've got David Dallow in there at eighth place, first year racing iron distance race, Cam Brown at ninth, and Mac is down there in tenth, and he's had a few um, you know, moderate blowouts over over the period, which probably probably affects him somewhat, but no Pete Jacobs in there. Um, no, who else did we have on the podium in Kona this year? We had Pete Jacobs, and then it was Ray Lurt. It was somewhere in the, in the 20s, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, ah, interesting. On the girls' side of things, um, Marinda Carfrey stays on top. Yeah, Marini has been very, very consistent over the last uh, races. She just had very few, not too good results. Um, but after Chrissy dropped off, and probably not going to come back to the to the rankings. Uh, I still have her uh, a bit ahead of of everyone else. Mm. Now, she's the only one who's won Kona of the yeah. list here, other yeah. than uh, Leander, who just entered the top ten. Yeah. So she, I think, I still consider her the the most consistent performer that that we've seen so far. Yeah. But I guess uh, Kona twenty thirteen will be really interesting. Yeah, uh, they got Mary Beth Allison second, who's outside of Kona undefeated over Iron Distance races, right. and and does quite a few, and is very very consistent. And also had a good Kona this year. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall her having a. Well, she can't have had a bad result if she didn't. Uh, she hasn't been beaten outside of Kona. Caroline Stefan in third, and Yvonne Van Vlerken manages to hang in there in, in fourth place despite not really having a good Kona. Oh, I don't know. I don't think she'd even race well, this she, year, did she? She's kind of similar to um, to Marino. She's had a string of DNFs over the last year, and I think her she she finished Florida in, in almost sub nine, but before that she had more than a year of no results on on the uh, list yet. But uh, when she finishes, she's she's uh, high up there. One other thing you look to have added this year that um, I don't know if you had in previous reports or not, I can't remember off the top of my head, is you, you've got best swimmers, best bikers and best runners. Um, yeah, that's the new one that I'm getting ready for the new uh, rating report. That's something I've been working on. Um, I started after Kona and then now I've, I am at a point where I can have a full list out there. So uh, uh, basically it's, it's a rating system again and, and you sort of factor in strength of field and, and how quick swims normally are, um, wetsuit versus non-wetsuit, how have you sort of gone about that for the swimming? It's basically the same system that I use for the total uh, time, just applied to the to the swim results. Uh, as long as I as I have them, there are some old results where the swim where the the individual disciplines are not broken out. But uh, whenever there's a swim rating, I just apply the same uh, logic that I do for the full result, uh, just for slow or fast course. Um, well, probably uh, some how how. Um, um, close the course was to the 2.4 miles it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. and then you have, for example, New York that had just had uh, some some current making the times mm-hmm. much faster than the one. I mean, that's the one that really breaks out uh, between all the different races. Other than that, most of the times are just like within a, a minute or two uh, to next to each other. Cool. And then just apply adjust the times that are in the um, on in the finishing list. Uh, adjust those times for the course and then again build a weight rated uh, average 
on how old the results are. Cool. So the swimming, we had Clayton Fatale, um, Andy Potts, and Luis Francisco Ferreira, or Ferrara Ferreira in, in third. Girls, no Not surprises. <laughs> Amanda Stevens, um, she just spanks everybody. She was the top girl, and Lucy Zelnikova and Didi Griesbauer on the bike. She's we had also more than like almost like a minute ahead of, of everyone else except for Lucy. Yeah. yeah. Um, She's really far ahead of everyone else. On the bike, we had uh, probably no great surprise guy we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Starkowitz in first. And um, he's significantly faster than he's four minutes faster than Sebastian Kuhn. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, for, for him, <clears throat> his rating is kind of a, a preliminary one because he just raced uh, Florida and Arizona, both pretty fast courses. And we haven't seen him... Uh, in a race compared with any of the other real top. superstars on the, on the bike yet, um, so that'll be interesting how that develops. But his times were amazing, yeah, <laughs> even, even for a fast course. Uh, Caroline Stephens on top on the bike, one place ahead of Natasha Badman. So that was uh, probably a bit of a surprise. Well, Natasha's been on fire the last year. It's it's yeah. really amazing how how strong she still is, and um, she still. Uh, is one of the strongest bikers out there. Now, I don't know. Did she have the strongest bike in in Kona this year? Pro- quite possibly. I think possibly, she was pretty yeah. close to the top at least. Yeah. Um, on the run, I was a little bit surprised here. Um, a guy I don't know. I don't know the name pops up from time to time, but um, Bart Arnert, um from Belgium is rated as the, the top runner. So, can you tell us a bit about um, his results and why he's he's so quick there? Um, he didn't have too many results yet. Let me see if I let me just quickly pull his results up okay. here. Okay, well, we've got Craig Alexander in second and Clement Alonso McKerner in third. We've seen some fast run splits from, from him over the years. On the girls, we've got Marinda Carfrey, um, no surprise there, Caitlin Snow, and Sonia Tysik, who I think was the, uh, maybe the only female that went sub three this year um i remember she had a, a very fast run in kona so yeah, she had the fastest uh run in in kona so it's about doesn't doesn't have a huge amount behind him yet i think he just had like three race results but he yeah. was also one of the fastest uh runners in kona hmm. let me see i just can't find his results right it, away that's all right um and and then we get to the 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 this year's sort of uh, top 10. Well, did, did one thing that I found interesting for the top 10 is one <coughs> name that wasn't mentioned at all uh, was uh, the German uh, best athlete that, that we have so far, Andreas Rehler. He wasn't mentioned in any of the uh, uh, swim ratings, any of the top uh, top uh, bikes or any of the top runs, but mm. still he's got the top uh, the best rating overall. So um, you don't have to be one of the really strong uh, athletes in one of the disciplines to come out with a great rating mm. but maybe that's one of the things that's missing for him to really pull out in and and win Kona yeah because he's uh, yeah yeah he's consistent across all three isn't he I mean he's fa- he's very fast at all three but uh, he's, yeah but he's not no top 10 potential but then you have a look like like uh, Rini who's still the best rated uh, female run athlete far ahead of everyone else that's that's where the races are won mm. when it comes to the top 10 performances of 2012 mm, um, this is interesting yeah it, it's very um, well, 
the guys and the girls side of things, it's very Melbourne-dominated. Um, so we've got first uh, Craig Alexander, second Cam Brown, and then in fourth we've got Freddie Van Laird from Melbourne, sixth Aniko Lanos from Melbourne, and David ninth. Dillon, ninth. Yeah. yeah, and then you've got yeah. a few Hawaii performances in there from, from Pete Jacobs. So I'm interested around Melbourne and, and how you come up with your, your formula. Um, if, if we say, for example, at Melbourne, Craig Alexander hadn't raced, um, and Cam Brown had, say, finished in the same time that he did, so he did uh, 8 hours and 12 seconds, and say he won the event in 8 hours 12, Craig Alexander wasn't there. How would that affect your your rating system, and would it give Cam Brown the same score because Craig Alexander's not there? It would basically give uh, Cam the same uh, adjusted result. So let me talk a bit how I adjust the the finishing times. Um, basically, what I do is I do a comparison between um, the time that uh, an athlete or the rating that an athlete had before the race and the time that he actually finished. So if everyone say is rated eight ten and everyone races eight oh five or races like five minutes faster than than his rating is, then I would adjust everyone's times by these five minutes because. Apparently, that was caused by the by the course and not by uh, any athlete being really fast on on that day. Mm. Of course, you can't really rule out that everyone had a stellar day. But if you have a lot of athletes, like like for Melbourne or for Hawaii, that's that's really unlikely. So it kind of statistically averages out there. Mm. Um, then I pull all of these individual adjustments together into an adjustment for the for the full race, basically averaging again, doing a little bit more sophisticated stuff to rule out some some blowups. But basically, that that's what it comes up. So I come up with an adjustment for each of the races, and that is then applied to each individual results. So Crowey was probably a bit faster uh, than his rating uh, indicated in in Melbourne. Um, so. Um, the the adjustment would have been a little bit lower if he if he hadn't raced, but then maybe Cam's 809 adjusted would have been like an 810 adjusted or something. Hmm. Um, the, the influence is not that high. He probably would have still had the best performance of the year in in my eyes there. Hmm. So we'll, we'll claim Cam Brown is the second best Ironman athlete in the world. Second best performance this year. Second best <laughs> He'd be pretty stoked if he got a bonus for that. Yeah. Um, well, I, I I went through the numbers because um, as you as you uh, said, there's a lot of Melbourne domination in in the top ten results. But I uh, went through the results and a lot of the the fast times, either the the actual results and the adjusted results, they really came from Melbourne. And Melbourne was just one of the two sub eight results on the men that we that we saw mm. uh, with with Crowey and uh, James Kunama, who who did seven fifty nine in 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 Rot this year. Those were the only sub eights we've seen this year. Mm. So Crowey's seven fifty seven. And all the really close to eight hours results by, by a lot of other people uh, in Melbourne, um, they really made this an, an, an impressive field. And same thing on the female side. I mean, Caroline's 834 was the fastest result of the year by far, mm. well, more than more than 10 minutes ahead of everyone else. And that, that was just really, really uh, impressive results in Melbourne. And then we had so Caroline Stephens on top. Rachel Joyce gets second and third with Melbourne and uh, and wrote. And then uh, Sonia Tysik was uh, fourth, and Caroline Stephen again in fifth. So Caroline Stephens got one, two, 
three of the top ten performances, and Rachel Joyce has got uh, has got two in there as well. So interesting yeah. stuff. Um, one thing, I th- and I'm pretty sure you did this last year. Um, after I think I might have put a request in for it, is is around the prize money and uh, and how much <laughs> or how little people are earning. So with with your prize money, you, you you've basically just done it from from my understanding on WTC Ironman races excluding Kona and excluding 70.3 races is that correct right. yeah right so a lot of these guys you got to remember well, if, I, if I put Kona in Kona would totally screw the, the results up there because yeah. there's just so much money uh, in Kona compared to the other races that um, that would totally skew the the results here. Mm. So from Ironman Racing, WTC Ironman Racing, Caroline Stepp- Caroline Stephen takes the top spot with a whopping thirty thousand dollars US. It's, it's sad. <laughs> and then you've got Mary Beth Allison, Jordan Rapp at twenty seven, Simone Briandi, I can't even haven't heard of her, twenty five grand, Meredith Kessler twenty five grand, and then down in sort of nineteenth uh, equal, you got Carrie Lester and David Dello at. Fifteen and a half thousand dollars. It's a bit of a sad indictment of our sport when uh, this is the sort of dollars we're talking about. But these guys are doing a lot of other races. You know, Caroline Steph and I will be making pretty pretty reasonable money as she should be, being being second uh, or being you know, arguably the fastest in the world at the moment. Does uh, when you first did this, were you a bit surprised about the um, the numbers you pulled out? Yeah, I was totally surprised because. I mean, if if this is the way, the main way that these guys are making their money, and these are the top athletes, and they just earn like like fifteen thousand dollars for the full year, like David Dello in in, in WTC races, I would be very surprised if he makes more than the same amount in other races again. Hmm. So thirty thousand bucks for the whole year, it's it's very hard to to live off that. Mm. Uh, let alone build kind of a cushion for after when your racing career is over. Mm. Well, and then you think of guys like David Dello, who's in Team TBB, or T, yeah, and uh, you know they give a lot of their money to Brett as well. Mm. You know the, the coaching fee and all the rest of it. You know, like it's yeah, it's it's a tough life, isn't it? Yeah, um, basically you have to have some sponsorships to uh, make a living of it. And um, for sponsorships, I think still Kona is the the big race to go to. So qualifying for Kona is something that almost all of these athletes on the list are are focused on. So you're a broadcasting professional because you led nicely into the, sort of the next topic, which is um, is, is Kona and the, the the KPR system. So tell us a bit about what you've seen. You know, we've had two years with the, the KPR now. Um, what have you sort of seen with regards to the best ways to qualify, um, potential ways not to try to qualify? What, what have you sort of seen? Any any particular trends there? Well, what I had a look at is where the the cutoff points were for the July and August qualifiers, and that's been relatively consistent. I mean, the, there were not too many changes between 2011 and 2012. Uh, 2012, a few more races, um, and uh, the total amount of points available went a bit up, um, but mainly the the numbers needed to qualify stayed pretty much the same. Um, so for for 2013 again, there's there's very few changes um, on the point side. Um, I would guess the the male numbers should come in similar to what they were in 2012. Um, the female races are a bit trickier because they added a few spots to the to the female field for Kona, 
uh, going from uh, 30 to 35 now. So, so you, I think they're... Yep. Sorry. Oh, no, you go. So you need less points for females now. So, so yeah, you should should be able to finish a bit further down uh, with a, a little bit fewer points than, than what, what uh, you had in 2011 and 2012. But my guess is that for 2013, you should have 4,000 points for the male to have a bit of a cushion and at least 4,500 for the, for the female side. So as you have like uh, five results that you can bring in, each of the individual results that you have to bring up uh, should be on average like 800 points for the male and 900 points at least for the females, which uh, makes um, racing in a thousand point race a bit of a gamble because there just has to be one superstar showing up and then um, the, the first spot is gone. You have to almost have to finish second to get enough points to, to finish in that range. So I don't see too much um, um, sense in, in racing a thousand points races if your focus is on qualifying for Kona. Mm. So talking about points, you know, so Kona is a 6,000 point race um, for the listeners and 10th place gets you 2,500 points. So, I mean, say you finish 7th in Kona and you get 3,100 um, points and then you go and do a, a um, one of the regional championship races, which is a 4,000 point race, you've only got to finish sort of in the top 10 or so to to, uh, to to make it back to Kona and then you've done your validation race as well yeah I've, I've put up some of like what I call qualifying strategies and uh, basically what you described was the Kona and validate uh, have a good a halfway decent result in Kona like like top 10 and then just finish in another uh, high point race and you should be should be uh, good for Kona um, I mean the last five years winners uh, basically have to do the same they just have to validate their slot by finishing uh, an Ironman and I think that's what what Rini and Land- Leander did this this uh, fall in finishing Florida and Arizona they just went there to uh, make sure that they have their Kona spot uh, secured and can plan the the next season just as they like to yeah. um, but well it you guys had the discussion uh, a couple of times in the past. Um, does it really make sense? Um, that's just the way the system is at this point, and it's WTC's uh, decision how the how the system is. Uh, I, I guess you can't fault uh, Rini or Leander for uh, working within the system and coming up with their plan to fit the requirements that WTC puts up. Do you think there'd be a better qualifying system, or have you got any opinions on... Uh you know, um, uh, probably more of a points-based system. But do you think there's a better way that they could do it that's fairer for the athletes? Well, fairer for the athletes. I mean, the the, the system is the same for for each of the athletes. Um, but um, I think it's it's a bit hard for the um, races that just have a thousand points. Mm-hmm. From a pro perspective, it's almost useless to race these races. So they'll have a, a really hard time to attract a decent field and to really make anything of their of their pro race, mm. and I think that's that's the question that uh, WTC has to look into. Um, what do they want to do with these uh, small races? A thousand mm. points sounds like a lot, but um, in in actual uh, terms, it just means well, if there's an athlete just that just needs a few points, he may start there. But why why would uh, any of the athletes that really want to qualify for Kona race there. Mm. There's just not enough points there. Um, so 
I think WTC should come up with a system that either totally gets rid of the thousand points races for the pros. So you just have a lot fewer races where the pros race, and then you may have some some races that are just age group races. I don't know if that makes sense for them. Mm. Uh, or if they want to stick with the smaller races, they should make the distance between the, the regional championships with 4,000 or, or Kona with 6,000 points uh, to the small races with 1,000 points smaller. Mm. So that uh, there's uh, decent points to be had uh, at the smaller races as well. And um, at this point, they're just forcing everyone um, without really saying so into mm. the bigger point races. Mm. Well, one thing you lo- you seem to love doing is is, is obviously analysing the results. Um, but one thing you, you seem to quite enjoy as well is, is predictions for uh, for events as well. So, what what are you sort of thinking? What do you what do you see on the horizon statistically for uh, for twenty thirteen? Well, I, I think we had a bit of a slower year for, for 2012 with just uh, two sub-8 races. I think we'll have some some um, more focus on really fast results in, in this year. Um, I think there's a, there's quite some room for, for faster results again. I don't know if we'll get back to the really quick results and the world records that we saw um, in, in 2011. Um, I don't know if that's even feasible for athletes to focus on a on a World Cup perform or World Record performance in the summer, and then be uh, in uh, really great shape for Kona. Mm. I think that kind of hurt uh, Andreas Rehler uh, last year when he did the uh, fast time in Ruth and just wasn't ready for for uh, finishing really fresh uh, in 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 Kona. Um, other than that, I think. The, the big change that we saw was a lot of athletes really focused on, on the fall races after Kona. Usually um, for the pro athletes, their season was over after Kona. And now we've seen a lot of uh, athletes trying to use the fitness that they had uh, for Kona and uh, get a few points or, or make secure their, their Kona spot in the race after Kona. Um, it worked well for some of them. Um, it didn't work so well for some of the others. I mean, Dirk Bockel really ran into problems in Cozumel mm. and didn't finish too well. So he, he, he's got to come up with a, with a different plan than probably what he had in mind after Kona. Mm. Just, I, I find it very interesting that um, I think the racing gets a lot more strategic. Uh, four points in the in the race calendar and I, I don't think we've seen the, the full impact of this strategic racing for points uh, yet mm, Exciting times ahead Well it's brilliant to have you on Torsten because um, I love going to your site and, and we, we use it a lot on the show as you know and it's uh, yeah, it's nice to, he- nice to hear your voice for a change and you speak bloody better English than we do How do you Yeah how what's you, all that about and you, you, how, how did you learn to write such good English Well it was too much practice. Um, I had a job uh, working with a U.S. company, so a lot of my work uh, involved uh, talking to people in in California and um, managing an IT project uh, for a German company, the California people. And mm. I had a chance to travel to the U.S. quite often, and I really enjoyed that. So I just uh, continued to practice and. I'm glad it's working. Oh, Thank you. You're doing very well. You can maybe give Bevan some lessons. Yeah, give me some lessons, mate. I need them, I tell you. 
Awesome. Well, it's great to have you on, and um, I'm sure the listeners enjoyed enjoyed this a lot. So they can they can um, go to your site, go to your site more often, and, and understand where you're coming from. And and for, for the listeners, I mean, it sounds like you do this for fun, but. Um, is there any way in particular they can support you in terms of uh, what you're doing? Well, for now, it's it's just a fun-based thing. I don't think there's there's uh, too much uh, money uh, that I can make in that. Uh, that would be nice if I can get a ton of sponsors through uh, the I Am Talk connection here. But uh, <laughs> I really see it that that's going to be my main source of earning money too soon. Um, if uh, your listeners are interested, they can go over to tryrating.com. Uh, they have a chance to subscribe to my uh, email list where I just send out uh, the announcements for the new rating reports that I'm putting out. And I'm putting out um, um, the rate start list as uh, far <laughs> as I can get and some predictions before the race. So um, if readers are interested in that, they should just uh, head over. And one thing that I'm working on with uh, a friend of mine, Luke, Dr- Luke Dragster, is we're probably going to put up like a betting site that um, oh. allows people to come up with uh, predictions or their guesses for who's going to finish uh, high up in the Ironman uh, <laughs> race. Uh, we're just working on something uh, there. So if you're interested in that, please let us know and we'll we'll keep you posted on it. Sounds cool. Sounds very good. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Torsten. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Uh, if you're listening to this early in the show, listen up later on. Joe, John owes me some money. That's all I'm <laughs> going to say. He owes me $10, potentially $160. But you, you have to listen into the future to figure out this. Yes. And you also find out at that stage that Bevan is a conniving, <laughs> cheating <laughs> bastard who's just <laughs> stealing my money. I am not. So Athlinks.com, today is the 1st of January. It is officially the day where you go back through and you update all your results from last year. Well, I won the sprint try in, in Queenstown. Yes. Oh, I yes. may not have. But if you, by this time, you should be able to look at Athlinks and see my results. Do you know what I'm going to do, Bevan? What are you going to do, John? I think, well, I don't know. I don't Come know on to it. Legit. No, it's probably not legit. What? Well, I was going to put our, um, our Blue 70 Wetsuit Aquathon Challenge up and we could all claim our results, but that's not really a legit race. Yes, it is. It was a race. There was a winner. The people turned up. Mm. I think there's probably more races than athletes with less people in it. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, how many did we get racing? About 5,000. 15 to 20,000. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they've got 105 million results on athletes. Wow. Was it 105 million? Yes. Wow, that's a lot of results. Yes, nearly 300,000 races. If you just add one more, it's not going to hurt. Yeah. I think you should. 300,000 members. So if you're listening and you're not a member. Mr. Fish would love it. Get on it. Yeah, he would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so in all seriousness, now's the time you want to go through, claim all your results. You, it's pretty simple. You just uh, click on events and uh, type in the event, or no, type in the event, um, your race name, go on there, pick out your name, claim it. Or hopefully should have actually picked up most of your results um, just by simply typing in your name there and you can just claim them all and you're away laughing. And if you're, the event you did is not up there, if it was a smaller local event, then uh, then just plug it in there. It only takes a few minutes, takes them a, little, uh, a week or week to two weeks to, to get everything up to speed. Boom, claim it, especially if you did well. John, I have to admit I regret not doing it when I was racing. Mm. I hadn't done much of it. Well, kind of, we got it came on board. Is it? I should have done more of it because I decided so many races, and I didn't always do great. But it'd be great to look back. Yeah, 
you know, and it's just one of those things that takes a couple minutes. And especially if those races end up disappearing, which a lot of races do. You or know? it's more when you're racing, you race a lot. Mm. Like, can you remember every race you've ever done? No, I would absolutely love it if this had all my results from, from France ever. and things like yeah. that. Yeah, how cool would um, that be? You know, most internet stuff goes back to maybe about 2000, maybe yeah. just before But that. if you're a starting athlete or someone who's just kind of new to the game, yeah. do it now. You, oh. It's one of those things where you kind of go, oh, yeah, whatever, but 10 years from now, you'll go, oh, I'm so I'm, glad I did that. Seriously, I'm gutted I do not have my results from the 90s. Yeah. I've actually, I could actually do some of this. I've actually got a folder at home that's got printouts of lots of my races that I've done with the results, oh, nice. and I could potentially, I suppose, scan those and get them in there. Yeah, that's a retired but, project, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but yeah. in terms of, or I, could, or I could pass them on to you and you could type them all up. I would do that for you, John, um, especially because I was right on this bet. So Be- Bevan's right. Get on there. Claim your results now. You'll regret it if you don't do it in a few years' time. Yeah, I really will, because the thing mm. is, I, I was a bit of a legend, mm-hmm. but I have no proof. Exactly. And so people just think I talk crap, which is probably true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there's an ad on there. I might just click on that. Oh, don't click on the ad. Couch to five. Uh, yeah, I feel like doing five. <laughs> five what? <laughs> five, beer, five beers? Yeah, Ooh. that's right. Knock it back. Knock it back. Cool. Here we go. Let's carry on with the show. You wake up in the morning and... You know you haven't had a really good night's sleep. You've had a, a really terrible night's sleep. And the reason you've had a terrible night's sleep is because today you know you have a challenge in front of you. And for the purpose of today's episode, we'll just say it's a physical challenge. It might be that you're going to a 10K running race or you've got an extra hard session at the gym with your personal trainer or some kind of physical challenge which is just going to absolutely push you to your max. And you sit there in bed and... You're sitting in that place of doubt where you don't know if you're going to be okay. You don't know how well you're going to do. and You're feeling slightly stressed, slightly nervous. It's that place that sometimes you hope for injury. Um, you, you see it sometimes with athletes. Some athletes, over a period of time, you find they always get injured before big events. And sure, there are athletes who get injured sometimes, but there's also athletes who get so close to a big challenge and they're so worried about failure or not achieving or or not getting a place that they wanted that the injury is the easy out. I've got to admit, as an athlete in my career, I've had those thoughts. I've had those times where the goal seems so big and even though I've prepared really well, you're almost looking for an out. And on this morning, you're feeling that way. You're laying in bed and you can see this challenge in front of you and you think to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to have to do this. You get up, you roll through your day, let's say the challenge is around lunchtime and, and through your whole day you're sitting in this place where mentally you're doubting yourself. Mentally you're worried about how well you're going to do it. You doubt if you can ever do it. You, again, you're sitting in that excuse place and it's just kind of daunting on you, in your head. One, one term I came up with, I had a session with a client today actually and, and I had a session, uh, a word that kind of popped into my head and, and it really connected with my client and it was the idea of future worry. That the event of the future, you live in a place where you're continuously worrying about it. That the moment you're building up to is on your mind in a place that lives in worry, future worry. I, I might need to, to patent that word, all those words. So... 
This whole day is consumed with this idea of future worry about this one moment in your day. Let's use the 10K race. Let's, let's say that's the, uh, the thing, you're, the future worry you have about. And you have experience in this 10K race before and, and maybe you've had some experience where you haven't gone so well and uh, your future worry is really focused on what you haven't done well in the past. You know, you're not very good at warming up and you get all nervous before the race and the race goes off and, and you often go too hard too early and then the last 10, you know, 3K of the race, everyone's passing you by. And so you, there's all these decisions that you're worried about that you're going to confront when you hit this 10K race. And so as you think of this future worry thing, it's just continuously kind of swirling around in your head of all these decisions which you're worried about making. The race comes along. Again, you feel real nervous. The gun goes off. And you instantly go back to some of the decisions that you have previously made that have made you unsuccessful. You go out too hard again because you're worried that if you don't go out hard, what happens to the rest of the, you know, do you not get the place you want to get or do you not get the time you want to get? And as the race progresses, you're doing good. But then again, in that last three Ks, the wheels fall off and you start to struggle. And suddenly people are passing you again and again and again. What I'm describing here is, is is what I like to call, think of of that day's critical moment, that day's defining moment, that from the moment you went to bed the night before because it was so important, you know, even in your sleep you were dis- disrupted a lot because it was on your mind so much you woke up because of that stress. From the moment you woke up, that critical moment in your day was what that day was all about. That that day would be defined by what happened in that critical moment. A lot of us have critical moments in every day of our life. I've used the sporting example here, you know, I've used, you know, the 10K race. And that was quite an extreme example of it, you know, if you've prepared well for an event or something like that and, you know, you've worked hard at something and then there's a, there's a moment where you test it. You know, that's the thing often with sports and, and events is that you work, you know, let's say you do a marathon, you work, you know, for three months, four months to do this marathon and you put so much time, energy and effort into achieving this marathon. So you get this this one day where it's meant to be a reflection of all the effort you've put in. So on those days, you have this really critical moment in, you know, doing a marathon. And obviously, it's a pretty long moment, so there's probably moments within it. But even on the lighter side, most days in your life are just a habit. When we think about, now, again, I can't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, people talk about, you know, I don't know, 80% of your day is just the repeat pattern of what happened yesterday. And I'm sure you can identify with what that is right now if you were to think of your morning routine how often does your morning routine change? Not that often. If you were to think about what happens when you turn up at work, you probably go and have a coffee, sit down at the computer, check out a few websites, look at your tasks for the day. There's a kind of a repeat pattern to most of the things that we do each day. They'll go through lunch, go through the night. And, you know, I think I talked about this a little bit when I talked about that um, the Action Triggers show a while ago, but the whole idea that most of our day is just a habit. But within that, most days will have what we call critical moments. Critical moments that will define the day, but that are the real test of character and test of what you want to be and the direction you want to go in. 
that if you hit those critical moments correctly or, or well, your day will flow on and there'll be a sense of success in that day. Whereas if you don't hit those critical moments well, there's a sense of disappointment. Let's say it's you going to the gym after work. A lot of people, there's that critical moment when they jump in their car, they get out of work, and as soon as they kind of finish their work from that moment forward, they're kind of in that battle of, will I go to the gym, won't I go to the gym? Will I, won't I, will I, won't I? That's a critical moment. That's a moment where a decision can go either way, and ideally you want to make a decision that will be the outcome you want. So let's say going to the gym is the outcome. Once you leave the office space and you're kind of, well, let's say you work in an office, once you leave your workspace and you head to the car, you're in this critical moment. If you make a good decision, which some days you will, you'll head to the gym. If you make a not so good decision or a poor decision, you'll head home feeling guilty, feeling you know, in a bad energy space, which will often lead to worse decisions. So you may go home and bugger, I haven't gone to the gym. I might as well eat some chocolate biscuits now. So as we think about our day-to-day lives, we, we recognise that most of my day is a habit. Most of my day is just the stuff I did yesterday. But in each day, and sometimes it's bigger, like doing a race or doing some sporting activity that's big, or, or even just a work thing, you might have a presentation or you know whatever. But even within days that don't have that added extra pressure, there are critical moments where you can work towards being your best. I'm going to do a bit of a, a bit of a sidestep here. I'm going to go back to critical moments later on in today's show, but I'm going to do a bit of a sidestep. I'm going to talk about a study which I found really fascinating that was done a few years ago now. I can't remember. I haven't actually got the dates in front of me right here, but it was a study done in Russia. And, and what they did in Russia is that they got a group of Olympic athletes. So these guys were high-level athletes. It's always interesting. I always find it funny. I, I had a, a girl I worked with for a little bit, um, called Chantal Brunner, Brunner, I think it was. Um, I didn't work for a lot, but <laughs> she worked in the same office when I worked in, uh, up in Auckland a little bit. And uh, she was an Olympic New Zealand Olympic long jumper. Now, she didn't win an Olympic medal, but I remember saying to me that most people don't understand how hard it is to just achieve the level of getting into an Olympics. That when we look at the Olympics, we, you know, obviously medal winners are what we're all about when we watch the Olympics. But the people who even just get into the Olympics in any sport are such high-level athletes in their own region and even just, you know, in their sport. And uh, uh, and I think a lot of people don't recognise that. Like Chantal was a phenomenal athlete and she got to the Olympics. Now, she never won a medal, but phew, didn't really matter. She was just that good. But these Russian guys were dealing with Olympic athletes. So these guys were high, high-level athletes. And what they were curious about is, how much would mental training help them in their physical ability to perform? So what they did is they took them through a series of physical tests and, you know, to measure, you know, how physiologically they would, you know, have an outcome around these tests. And then what they did is they broke them into four different groups. Now, one of the groups received 100% physical training. So they dealt with coaches and the coaches just gave them physical training 100% of the time. The second group did 75% physical training with 25% mental training. So that's been, you know, let's say let's say the first group did 10 hours of physical training a week. The second group would do seven and a half hours of physical training and then two and a half hours of just mental training. Group three was 50-50 and group four did 75% mental training followed by 25% physical training. 
Well, these, what these researchers or scientists were interested in was which group would get the most physical benefits, the best performance results from these different types of training. Who do you think would win? Who do you think guys would be one? Do you think it would be one who would just do the physical 100% of the time? Or do you think it would be 75-25 or 55-50 or 50-50, sorry, or 75-25? What the researchers found out was that group four, the group who did 75% mental training with 25% physical training, had the best performance results. Now, that's pretty massive when you think about it, isn't it? Now, I'm not sure if that goes across all sports and all times, but to think that these guys are training, so if we go to the hour rate, and again, this is just me making an example of it, but let's say there is 10 hours of exercise to be done, that the guys who only did two and a half hours exercise and put 75%, you know, seven and a half hours into their mental training actually got better performance results than the guys doing 10 hours training. That is massive. And to be honest, I haven't read much further into, you know, what's been done since this study. And so, uh, to be honest, I find it really hard to to believe. But what the study did show is that if we could spend some time developing our mental strength to actually put time into our, our training as an athlete or in our day as a person, where we sit and focus on our mental game, we will improve our performance. If we can put mental training into our day, either as an athlete or as a person, we can improve our performance. It's pretty massive when you think about it. And I think what I want to lead into, and one of the things, where is this all going? I suppose this is a question you probably want to ask right now. And today I'm going to talk about one of the tools that we can use. Now I've used other tools on the show before. There's the black and white rules, there's the um, action triggers and affirmations and stuff like that. And But one thing I haven't touched on, which I'm sure a lot of us know about, is visualisation. And uh, what is visualisation and how can we use it as one of those tools in our toolbox to help us make great decisions in our day? So I suppose, first of all, what is visualisation? And and I'm sure all of you guys listening to this right now have an understanding of what visualisation is. But visualisation is, is really a technique of creation using your imagination to put yourself in situations towards an experience in your life. Um, that, that's a, a pretty kind of easy way to do it. But what's really interesting around visualisation is that there's, there's, I'm going to talk a little bit around technique later on in the show, but there's a good book by a guy called Richard Wiseman, and it's called 59 Seconds, uh, Think a Little, Change a Lot. And it's his kind of thinking with the book was that he was really curious. I, he's like a psychologist. Um, I don't exactly know what he is, to be honest. Yeah, I think he's a psychologist. But um, he's, his thinking behind the book was, you know, there's all these self-help methods, methods out there that, you know, self-help industry kind of promote and uh, he was really curious to see well let's let's test them and let's see if you know which ones work and which ones don't and uh, he spends a bit of time on visualization within that and um, he kind of concludes which is very interesting is that some forms of visualization are really great and then other forms are actually destructive that other forms actually hold you back and when he goes into visualization he talks about the form that holds you back of uh, visualization is what we call big picture visualization. Big picture visualization. So it's the idea that, you know, you know that ultimately you'd like this dream life, 
you know, so you might say, okay, well, I'd love to be, you know, a, a, an amazing athlete and, ha- and have a mortgage-free house and have the amazing partner and, you know, all these dream things that's an ultimate dream, you know, it's that life you'd get if you won lotto. And, but you also know that right now that life is far off that A, you're, pro- you're struggling to do 30 minutes exercise a day, B, you've got a lot of debt and uh, C, you're single. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just putting it out there. Now, if, if that person there were to sit and dream of this life where they live like Brad Pitt, where they, you know, got a hot chick, um, they've got an amazing job or career that they're actually really passionate about, they've got loads of money and all the rest of it, if you were to spend time visualizing on that, it would actually hold you back. That big picture visualization is not very effective and if anything, it pushes you away. And the reason it pushes you away or restricts you is that it's not realistic. That when you think of the big picture and then you wake up and see what you are right now, that the gap between the both are just so massive that it actually leads to inaction. That people who visualize on big picture well off in the distance, maybe not unrealistic, it's unrealistic to say you won't get there, but it's, it's unrealistic based on where you are right now, you're actually going to be held back and you're going to feel, I can never get there. The type of visualization that works, the type that actually makes an impact, is when you visualize the actual processes that you have to do in the next step along your path. So let's say, you know, the ultimate life is, you know, hot chick for a guy's and hot guy, for, I don't know, <laughs> great partner, I suppose is a better way of putting it, great partner for you and, and loads of money, great career and lifestyle that you're really proud of. Let's say that's, that's where it's at. And right now, you're, you know, you're single, you're struggling with exercise and you're in a job that's okay. Now, if you were to spend time visualizing that big picture life, you're probably not going to get anywhere. You're probably, if anything, going to feel restricted because it seems so far away. But if you were to spend some time visualizing getting out and doing 30 minutes exercise five times a week, then there's a much higher chance that because you're focused on the process of your growth and use the tool of creating imagery and and a picture around the actions you're going to take in that moment, then there's a much higher chance that you'll be successful. That visualization is a very, very powerful tool. But only when we focus on helping us towards our process, towards the growth that we ultimately want to head down. I thought I'd share with you guys my experience of visualization. I, um, I, I do spend some time visualizing every day, and, and I want to go back a little bit to that critical moment kind of stuff. And this is, it's a lesson I've learned that's worked really well for me and, and maybe for you as well. And I'm sure um, a lot of people will identify with what I'm going to talk about right now. But I've kind of, I wake up in the morning every day. And I, and I am a goal-oriented person. I've kind of got goals for this period of my life and all the rest of it. And I, um, I have a, this kind of visual document that I've created for myself. It's it's a, like a 20-page document. Um, and it's graphically quite beautiful because it's important to me. And uh, you know what? If you want to check it out, I'll put it in the show notes on the website this week. So you can actually have a look at at what it is. But basically, it kind of represents my values, it represents um, my goals, it represents the things I love in life and uh, people who I aspire to, people who inspire me. Um, you know, it kind of wraps up what I am. And uh, and there's, you know, a few little kind of favorite sayings and stuff I have in there as well. And, and every morning when I wake up in the morning, that's the first thing I do is I kind of wake up, kind of open my eyes slowly because I get up too early 
And then I, I just read through this. I spend about five, ten minutes just reading through it. Sometimes when I really want to go really into it, I even add music. So I'll put some of my favorite music on and just my iPod ears. And I have this as a PDF. So I just get my phone and I just open it up on my phone and put my ears in and get some music in. So I'm kind of trying to get myself to a bit of an emotional state. And the first thing I do is I, I try to put my mind in that place of what kind of person do I want to be in this world and that will come from values and, and a lot of stuff I've put a lot of time reflecting on. Once I've done that, then I spend some time thinking about my critical moments in today. Think about those moments in my day which will really define my day. We think about the habits. You know, if I go back to that whole, my life is mainly just habits, but today will be defined by a few key moments. I'm searching for those critical moments. And like I've been saying, that most of our life are just habits. So critical moments, I've found through kind of years of doing this, is, is it tends to come down to five or six moments in my day. They'll be the critical moments that if I do those moments well, the rest of my day will flow on. So I'll give an example of, of some critical moments and, and areas where I you know, maybe need to improve. So for one example is when I sit down to work at my computer. Now... I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good worker, I'm pretty focused, but like most people, I definitely get distracted at moments within my day, and my day tends to be um, get up, I'll do some exercise work, so it might be training people, it might be teaching classes, or it might be me doing some exercise myself. From there, I'll come home, I'll make some breakfast, and then normally around about 8 to 8.30, I'll sit down and, at my computer, I work from home mainly, so I'll sit down at my computer, and, and I'll have jobs that I need to do for the day. Now, I know that for myself, that when I'm working well, I set objectives for my time. That at the beginning of the first thing I do in the day is I have like a, a meeting with myself. And I look at my diary, I look at my tasks and my to-do lists, and then I just write down what are my objectives for the next period of time. Now, some days when I've got a lot on or I'm a little bit distracted, not much of that happens because I'll get unfocused and I'll end up losing an hour just by, just by pissing around, to be honest. So for me, um, on a day where I've got a lot on, my critical moment is often just sitting down and having that objective session. That if I can sit down and think about what are my objectives for the tasks I have in front of me, I work like there's, like a, there's a flow that comes with that. Whereas I don't do the kind of the, the objective planning session, I don't do so well. If we look at exercise, you know, often, you know, for someone like myself who's, who's done exercise for so many years, the exercise, turning up and doing exercise isn't really the hard thing anymore. But sometimes you know you have a session where you've got to push the intensity a little bit more. So I might be going to the gym to do some weights with a friend who I know is going to push me really hard. And you know that there's that moment before the set, you know, I might be doing bench press and, you know, getting on that bench press and knowing that I'm putting my weight up and not looking for excuses to take it easy and actually taking on that challenge. For me, that moment as I lay down on that bench to get the bar up is a critical moment to put my mind in the right place. That's what we're looking for is we're scanning our day for those critical moments. Once we've identified what those critical moments are, then what we're looking to do is we're trying to visualize and pre-plan the decisions you're going to make at that moment. So again, this goes back to the stuff that Richard Wiseman was talking about, that we're focusing on visualizing the process that's going to lead us towards what we want to be. So if I'm scanning throughout my day, and let's just use those two examples, I've got a busy day with work, and I've got a weight session at the gym, which I know is going to be really challenging for me. As I'm in my morning kind of mental planning session, 
as I'm scanning my day, when I've identified those moments, then I'm going to use visualization to watch myself do the behaviors that I would do in the perfect situation in that moment. So I might create a visualization around um, the picture of, you know, or, or of me sitting down at my desk, grabbing my pen, seeing myself write down all the different things that I'm going to have to do, so setting the objectives. I might create the visualization of laying down on the bench, breathing to myself, mentally telling myself I'm up for this challenge, physically seeing myself push through that challenge. So I'm creating the picture and the imagery of that moment. Now I've found for myself this has been a really good strategy in using visualization. And one of the biggest benefits I've learned through doing this, you know, critical moment planning in my morning that's based around, you know, my values and all that kind of crap, is that when that moment comes up, I know I'm going to make the right decision. Now, it might be because I've planned, but I think it's because visualization is a part of the process as well. But when I sit down at that office desk at 8.30 in the morning, I grab my pen and I start writing down my objectives for the day. When I get on the weights bench, I know that I'm going, to, I'm going to have the right attitude, I'm going to push on through. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to fail with the weights because weights you know, can be more challenging than I can push, but I know I'm going to bring to it the right attitude that I'm going to have. And this is how we can start to use visualization in our days. This is how you can start to use visualization in your days to identify your critical moments, to know what the challenge is, and then to plan and visualize the processes, the behaviors, and the actions that you will take in that moment, they're going to lead you down the path that you want to head down. So then, I suppose the next question is, how do you visualize? And, and this is one that I kind of wonder if I really need to spend that much time on, because I'm sure most of us know how to create visual pictures inside our mind. But there are a couple of things that can definitely help us enhance that visualization process. And... Um, the first is to add emotion to it. You know, when we're thinking about visualization, we're actually thinking of creating a, a, a scenario where we're trying to show, you know, those processes and behaviors I just talked about. And if we can add some emotion to it um, around that, you know, like when you think of an emotional state, um, you know, for me getting on the weights bench, when I'm feeling physically strong and I'm feeling emotionally strong, what does my body feel like? As I lay down and I put my, you know, my head back down and look at that bar up in front of me, what, what emotion am I going through in my head as I'm preparing for this challenge? What words would I say to myself? And I know visualization is just a visual thing, but there's, there's, there's the auditory side of it that comes with it as well. So as I'm laying on that bench, what, what words will I visualize or, or as I create this creative picture, will I be saying to myself? As a weight comes down, I'm starting to struggle. What you know? What am I going to see, and what am I, emotionally am I going to feel? One thing that you, when you do some researching on visualization is that, that, that to make them brighter and, and uh, make the picture bright and vibrant, and things like that will really help as well. Some people argue that if you want to make it more effective, you try to bring the picture closer in your mind's eye uh, around the visualization as well. So, the other things you can do is add music to it. 
like I know that sounds kind of odd, but you can put a song in your mind. You know, like for me, I might sit on the bench and I might hear some massive operatic theme as I'm watching myself do this weight. There's the idea of visualization of what we call associate and disassociate. And associate is where you see it in your own eyes. So, you know, again, like if I'm lying down and I see the eye, the bench, you know, the bar up in front of me, I'm seeing it from the perspective that I see life in. But then disassociate is where you're watching it from the third person, where I'm looking at myself from outside myself and it's like I'm a ghost over my own body and I'm watching myself physically do that movement. And you can use both. They say that, you know, some work better, you know, some people prefer the you and some prefer the disassociate. It's, it's trial and error. It's about you figuring out what works for you. But basically at the end of the day, the better picture you can create and the more effective you can make it, like by making it vivid and bright and emotional and all those types of things, the more you're going to find when you hit that moment. It's not a battle of how to make a decision. You've already made that decision. The more you find you hit that moment, the battle has disappeared because you've already made that decision. Now I know for me this is something I've done for years now and I know it's it's been an evolutionary process and I think uh, like all things I often talk about is that this is just a skill. You know, spending time visualising the critical moments in your day is just a skill that you need to develop. But as you develop it, you'll, you'll get better and better at figuring out what works for you. Now, some of those tips I just gave there, some of them will work for you and some of them won't. But over time, if you practice that skill over and over again, you'll figure out what's the best way to make this critical moment planning in your day and how you use the tool of visualization to help you overcome those moments. Think about your day right now. Think about maybe today or think about tomorrow or think about yesterday. Think about those critical moments in your day when you got them right and when you got them wrong. If you think about those days when you get your critical moments right, how do you feel about yourself? What are the benefits of getting those moments right? And then when you think about the days where you didn't get them right, those days where you jumped in the car after work, with the intention of going to the gym, but suddenly you find yourself on the path home. And because you let yourself down, you end up eating chocolate biscuits. And you think about what the effect of both paths is. The path where you make better critical decisions and the path where you make poor critical decisions. I'm pretty sure that you'd much rather live in a life where you make better critical decisions more often. So then the next point I suppose I have to make is how can you start adding the process of doing critical planning in your day? Now, for me, I do mornings. I'm an early morning person. I'm up at pretty much five o'clock every morning nowadays. I get one sleep in day a week and I love it, I tell you. <laughs> it's, it's Friday here right now and, uh, <laughs> and I've still got, I've got an early morning tomorrow morning and Sunday I don't have to get out. I don't have to do anything till 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm so looking forward to sleeping in. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's just me letting you know about that. But you've got to work for you. You've got to make these things work for you because you might say to yourself, oh, I've listened to Bev and I'm all inspired and tomorrow I'm going to wake up at five o'clock and I'm going to, or six o'clock, but I normally get up at eight and I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this critical moment planning and, and do all the rest of it. And then the alarm goes off and you think, oh, five minutes more. And then you push snooze and then it becomes eight o'clock and you jump out of bed and you're in the rush of your day. And 
when I deal with people, I always think, what's going to make you most successful? And there's no one formula for success that your formula is different to the person next to you, to your partner, to your workmate, to your teammate. But there's a moment in your day where you can figure out to put in some critical planning. So I've got one client who that's the first thing he does when he gets to work. He doesn't like doing the early morning thing so much, but he loves just getting into work, shutting his office door and doing his critical moment planning. I've got another client who does it before he goes to sleep at night. So he, he goes, you know, before he goes to sleep, he just does a recap of his day and then he does a bit of a critical moment planning for his next day and then he visualizes those, those moments. If you can make that commitment to spending five, ten minutes, you know, the better you get. Like I probably spend three or four minutes doing that, is it? It doesn't take that much time. But that three minute commitment has a massive influence on the decisions in my day that really define my day. If you could spend, you know, at first it might take a little bit longer, let's say five to ten minutes, and make a commitment to doing that five to ten minutes to scan your day, to find those moments, and then to visualize the decisions and processes that's going to make you better in those moments. And then you find that because you've put that time in, then you make better decisions. Do you think you get better outcomes? That you'd be on a path that you know leads you towards that ultimate life? <laughs> It's funny, it's a three-minute commitment, three- to five-minute commitment. And it's funny how when we go back to that study that the athletes who put the most time into their mental training actually got the best physical performance. Now, you can use this for the physical side of yourself. You can use this for your work side. You can even use it for your relationships. But if you make that commitment to putting that in your in your skill box, you know, the skills you use to make yourself better, and you were to practice that more often, I'm pretty sure you'd see some pretty wicked benefits of bringing this in your life. Before I quickly wrap up, I'm going to show, share with you guys at the end of the show, because I'm going to, it's, it's pretty full on the thing I'm going to do. I found a, um, a visualization technique that I... Um, I actually read in a book about 10 years ago and I managed to find it on the internet um, doing research for this show and it's it's a little bit different to what I'm talking about today. It's a bit more of an appreciation for yourself kind of visualization and I'm, I'm going to actually do it at the very end of today's show. So if you want to listen to the end because it's one of those things where you have to kind of, it takes a little bit, little bit of time and there'll be some silence and stuff and it wouldn't have worked within the show. But if you want to listen up at the very end of the show and uh, you've got a bit of quiet space to listen and, and do this this drill, um, hang around because it's one that I think is pretty cool. So to kind of wrap things up, all of us have moments in our day that define our life. All of us want to be well, I believe, want to be moving forward and developing and growing. One way that we can do that is to find those critical moments and then use a great tool like visualization to see ourselves making the perfect behaviors, to making better behaviors and better decisions so that ultimately we can be that best version of ourselves. Sponsor. 
Extreme Endurance. And it's a good product, John. And you know what's really happening right now? What's really happening? My gut. Yeah, it's <laughs> not working for you. You need a it's bit not, of this? Because I ate too much ham. Oh, too much ham. Because we, last night we went to mum and dad's house because Millie were doing the show. When, what is it? We started the show on last Tuesday. Yeah. And now we're on Sunday. Yeah. This is going to be the longest show ever. And it's it actually is. the 23rd of December. Did the Christmas dinner at my mum's house. We were also doing Christmas Day. I don't know why that happened. But, and there was a lot of ham. And mum and dad said, we don't need this much ham. So I had a lot of ham. Got to be careful with and ham. And then I came home here just before you were there and I ate lots of ham. Got to be careful. Have you got any gut remedies for me? Yeah, I've got the extreme gut endurance. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it works with ham, but if you're somebody who has had uh, gastrointestinal distress during races... Um, if you're eating ham, you probably will. You probably will. Yep. Ham, imagine doing an Ironman on ham. What do you reckon would be the worst thing you could eat during, during an Ironman? Something that's going to give you the craps first. Or, something or real fatty food as well. It doesn't well, digest. Probably, well, you're probably going to get some people arguing that that's not such a bad thing. Oh, nowadays. We, nowadays. we never know, do we? Oh, Tim Noakes, you know, get on the bloody Atkins bandwagon. But does he say during the race to do that? Well, he was saying that Paul Newby Fraser um, was used to nibble away on, like, um, you know, jerky-type stuff. What's she ever done? Mm. <laughs> Hoax athlete. <laughs> um, but if you are somebody who has, is going through gastro... <laughs> Issues on the on the during a race or, or in training for that matter, and you try different things. You know, this is another um, angle you might be able to try. It's only twenty two ninety five for a uh, a little uh, container of gut endurance, and it's got you know probiotics in it. Um, and we've got like my kids at the moment; they're on, on all their probiotics, to try to help their repair their guts. Because is it happening? We're getting there. We're slowly getting there, but a big part of this is is the probiotic side of things. So check it out, um, xendurance.com, and go for a bit of gut endurance and get your guts ready for the race. You put all the training and effort in to get there, and then if you screw it up with bad nutrition or just you've got something going on in your gut, it's a pretty tough pill to well, swallow. I think well, other, this is not a tough pill to swallow. Uh, nice, John. It was good. You did well. I think the other thing is if you are someone who you know does have this problem, like um, – Who's Ian? Ian. I can't remember his last Ian name. Ian Wood? No, not Ian Wood. Another oh, Ian. Ian Scott. Ian Scott. He always mm. had gut problems, didn't he? Mm. You know what I mean? And if you're someone who's just had them and you've tried everything, give it a try. You know what I mean? I don't, you know, hopefully it works. And Extreme Gut Endurance provides 25 billion viable probiotic cultures of nine strains of beneficial bacteria per capsule. Wow. Well, it's just that thing that if, if it's your gut that goes, it's mm. just going to destroy you mentally every time if it happens every time. And we've talked um, quite a bit about you know the fish oils and so on in yep. the past, proven probiotics. It's the business. It's the business. It's I, the business. I don't know much about it, to be honest, but you do. I so Get you said it. it's the business. Extreme. So extremeendurance.com. Exactly. Or xendurance.com. Yes. Yes. Gut. Do you know what, John? Your gut's getting better just thinking about <laughs> just it. Just thinking about it. It's hot. Okay, it's, it's hot. a long day. It's hot. Oh no, here's uh, what is next on the show? <laughs> we'll just go. We'll just roll into the next part. Well, I don't know what we've done already. Ah, uh, no, we'll just roll into this. Uh, here's an interview. No, no, <laughs> we're back in the studios next week. What? We're back in the studios next week. What are you going on about? What's what's? Well, today's the first of January. Oh, we are we wrapping up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we put the other interviews in, have we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, good. Well, you've had, oh. You just slot your fitness behaviour. Oh, that was there. great. What do you think of my fitness behaviour? Oh, it was outstanding. So, no, I had a, uh, you will have heard, we had a great interview with Torsten. I had a chat to Paul. I did hear that. I had a chat to Paul Newsom uh, for about 40 minutes or so. Is it in there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to well, be a long show. <laughs> it's going to be. You may reserve your right to put your fitness behaviour Oh, in. no, I'm putting that in there you, first. You're putting it's that my in there. Pe- my promotion. Um, 
and I think you guys will have enjoyed the, the Paul Newsom stuff. He's, he's apparently his book. Uh, Ian Wood was actually telling me when we were writing this morning. Is it right if I take my top off? No, <laughs> uh, he said he's got the got the book from those guys, and he said it's awesome. Oh, I haven't listened to your interview. So Swim Smooth got a new book out. But last time he was on, mm. he's just so thorough, and, I, mm. and what they've done really well is they've categorised very well. So, Triathlon. Yeah, well, just even the different levels of abilities mm. and bodies, and so you can look at it and go, "Oh, that's me." You know, and, and I think a lot of the time with a lot of products out there is they just they go to Michael Phelps and they go to Ian Thorpe. Yeah, say, yeah, something like that. And uh, someone like myself who couldn't swim at all when I did, I well, I could not drown, but I wasn't a swimmer. You know, you to see, oh, okay, I'm dropping my hips too much, and actually see that these are the things I do. They've just they've, they've created a very clever method. Hmm. Good on them. Yeah, a guy that was riding with us this morning, he, he name just, him, Jake, name Jake. I don't know his surname. Jake um, the Musk. He's only, he, his wife found this little list that he had. He, he's only been doing triathlon for like a, a okay. couple of months and he kept up with us pretty handsomely today. Wow, and we, we were pushing it. And uh, his wife found this little list, the list of things he wanted to do by the time he was 30 and Iron Man was on it. And so she just went and entered him in Iron Man and said, here you go, you oh, go wow. and do an Iron Man. How cool is that? Uh, he's decided to, to, to take the sensible approach of doing a half this season and deferring the Iron Man. No, he would have been right. How old is he? And he's just must be just under thirty, I think. He's pretty strong. Kept up okay today. Yeah, so he'd be right. If yeah. you keep a few, you can do an Ironman. Yeah, I think swimming, a little bit of work. But so that my, my the reason I was talking about that is swimming. He could probably do the swim swimming John, side of things. John, the John Newsom three-year plan says new to triathlon. Take this to baby steps. Get the experience. Learn from the sport. Let's say I'm a really good bike runner. Do I need to do a three-year plan? No, but uh, if you've got that, oh, if, if you've if you've got that background, you're absolutely sweet. And he he would get through it. He would finish the race. No no doubt in my mind, he would get through it. But I think he would enjoy it a lot more if he had a season of racing under his belt first. But the thing is, for me, I didn't do the Newsom plan, mm. and my first race was kind of crazy and stupid and died mm. but that's what I loved about it mm. you know it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the experience I was like oh my god I want more of this in my life there you go so there's always a different side of this coin <laughs> look at where you are now <laughs> look at me my top up my yeah. nipple showing <laughs> so next week we are back in the studios and we'll be talking a bit more about uh, Challenge Wanaka it's going to be good down there Mac is racing and um, Victoria's trying to line us up a couple of interviews to do on our first show back so uh, oh, Victoria you rock yeah no um, that's the kind of race directors we like who help us out yeah and uh, so we might we might have Mac on the show I'm not sure but um, also looking to, to have a chat to Joe Lorne um, see where she's at and uh, I think the Gina versus Joe Lorne is a nice grudge match it's a good grudge match. It is because of different personalities as well, aren't they? Yeah. Gina's a really reserved, quiet, kind of unassuming character. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. But what, what, you you don't agree? No, I agree. But she's... Oh, she's a competitor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not saying she's not a competitor. Yeah. I'm just saying personality-wise, yeah. she's you know, just quite an unassuming. Whereas Joe is a bit more kind of full-on. Yeah. And she'll be the first person to admit it. She always has to tell herself to shut up in the race. you know. And so it's just that contrast in personality is quite interesting. I still show, show people a picture of Joe Lorne and Kona with that helmet on. And Ax, Axel asked me the other day, uh, I, I showed him it, and he said, would you, would you wear that? And I said, look, they would have to pay me quite a bit of money to wear that helmet. Would it be if it was five minutes to you, would you? Oh, look, I don't know. It's come on, John, because I, I remember a few That's years a ago, John Euston goes to me, oh, those socks. Those tr- those socks that people wear, they look like idiots. Love them. Love them. I you never know? see that. Bevan, you're putting words in my mouth. And I reckon, I reckon in a few years we'll all be wearing them. 
If it's the technology that's the, the you know, admittedly you do look like that character from Fat Albert, uh, uh, the one that only yeah, had the eyes. Remember yeah, that guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. But but John, it doesn't matter because if you're people want speed, they do. When does stupidity take over speed? That's the big question, isn't it? It's yeah, happens pretty quickly in triathlon. Another race is coming up. Just to change the topic, because Ben's going to keep harping on until I say how much it's going to cut. I'll take before I wear the helmet. Uh, same weekend as Challenge Wanaka, we have the Auckland seventy point three. Yeah, this is a biggie. Could be quite interesting. Do we know the field at this stage? Well, we know the guys. Um, we don't know too much about the girls, although apparently uh, the Warrior Princess Zena is racing and she will spank everybody. She will. Um, I'm sure she will. Does she dominate as much in seventy point three? Good question. I don't know. Don't know. I don't think she does. I don't think she does a huge amount of them. She generally just races. You know, she does Abu Dhabi. She did Germany. She did Melbourne. Melbourne. Kona. Kona. Don't know how many. I know she won a couple in Philippines or something like that. But um, yeah, she'll she'll be awesome to watch. But I, I'm the, the men's race is going to be pretty interesting. Um, Bevan Doherty versus Terenzo Bozzoni. Now Terenzo in this game sharp. Yep. Yeah, so is Bevan. Oh yeah, they're both sharp. So Cam Brown's racing. Let's be honest, over 70.3 distance, don't think he stands a chance um, against those guys. It. Yeah, uh, I mean, he got crushed the other day by just some, some journeyman guys in, in Taupo. I'm sure he had, it might have been sick or whatever, but he hasn't won like Tauranga for a long time either. So I think over, over the 70.3 against those two, I think they'll be on, a, on, another, on another sort of stratosphere. But I, it's, a, it's a tricky one to pick because Bevan's... Super consistent, awesome. Um, finished third at the seventy point three champs. He's great over this distance. Terenzo has won the champs. Yeah, Terenzo. You know, if he's in top form, is uh, is also hard to beat. So it's um, you got Tim Burkle from Australia. I mean, those guys won't be in it. I mean, they're, they're talking up in this press release. We got you know guys. Paul Ambrose, not not too bad. And Joe Gamble's very very solid. Smoking I Joe. I don't know why they're talking up Tim Burkle so much against um, Terenzo and, and Bevan. He's not going to be on the same uh, the same. What about Luke Bell? Oh, Luke Bell, not bad, but again, I can't see anybody getting in front of Bevan or Terenzo. Uh, but Paul Ambrose, he's pretty solid. And Luke, uh, and uh, Smoking Joe Gambles. Are we getting solid. coverage in New Zealand? I think it'll do all right. No, are they going to have it on TV? What's happening? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure they'll have it just on Ironman Live. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, Bevan. Do not know. Because they've got a lot of PR when they released it. Mm. Like mainly oh, no, it was Auck- on the news. Auckland will be pumping it. Auckland City Council, they'll, they'll, yeah, it'll get great coverage on the news. Whether we have live TV coverage or anything like that, I'm not quite sure, but it will, it'll get good coverage. It'd be cool if they had it. Yeah. Mm. That should be great. Sponsors, John? Athlinks.com. Athlinks.com. I don't think we've done them. Let's talk about them. No, we have. No, we haven't. Uh, today, no, we did because today's New Year's Day and you're claiming all your 2012 results. I remember talking about that last week. We'll, we'll go back and check when we finish this show, but I'm pretty sure we did. Okay. Good. Okay. Um, so, sponsors? Athlinks. Coffees of Hawaii. Yes. We're talking about the teas. Yep. And we've done SLS. Yep. I'm pretty sure we haven't done. Uh, okay, let's put some money on. We'll finish the okay, show. Okay, let's put a gamble on. We gamble on the show. Now, the thing is, you guys will have already heard the show and it will be in there because even if we're wrong, we'll go back and do it. But let's just do a gamble now. We're going to do a Bevan. Because I know you love the gamble. No, we're going to do a double gamble. Double down, John. Tell me what's happening. Because, uh, and the other sponsor is Extreme Endurance. Um, we get, that's where we're going to get our guts fixed. But when I come back, I've got to have a meeting at the casino. For, we've got an Ironman camp coming up uh, Yep, two Next weeks from week, now. Yep. Uh, whatever. And we're having a little meeting at the casino. So here's the deal. Whoever's wrong here gives the other person 10 bucks. I'll take it into the casino, put it on, we'll choose red or black, and we'll just, we'll just, we'll just keep, ro- keep rolling. Oh, you're we'll just keep rolling. <laughs> we'll put it on until we get to a hundy, 
and uh, we'll just, I'll just leave. We'll just keep doubling up. Okay. So, so the, okay. So, the, so I'm saying we've done athletics. I'm saying we haven't done athletics. And I'm saying we were, we talked about uh, claiming all your 2012 results. Okay. So that's what you've said. Now, again, guys, you would have heard this ad already because if we haven't done it, we're going to go back and do it. But we're going to come back right now because that's how the podcasting works, and we're going to say who the champion is. Yes. Okay. Here's the pause. What's it like to lose $10, John? Well, you see what Bevan did. <laughs> He's cut the controls over there. He just went across and did it. Delete. Oh, it's not there. No, I didn't. Miraculous. $10. So what? So wait, you're going to go to the casino. Yeah. You put $10 down. If it gets to 100 I get to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that. And I get to say the order of colours. Um, you can't go or I can you go black red black red. I'm not going to take in a piece of paper going. I'm three times on red, one on black, and then well, put the rest on. Well, zero. let's figure it out. If it's double your money, yeah, ten dollars. Set ten, you get twenty. Twenty, forty, eighty. So I need to win ten to twenty, twenty to forty, forty to eighty. So I get 160 bucks if I get four right. Yeah, I'll take 60 bucks commission. No, no. Handling fee. No, you lost the gamble. <laughs> Handling fee. You lost the gamble. Okay, so what colours do I go? Do I do it now or should I do it? When you, when's your meeting? Oh, I think it's the 6th of January. So I have to do it now? Yeah. Okay, here's the colours, John. I'm going to have to remember to do this as well. Don't pull out you. Don't say you just lost as well. Can you do video? Can you do video? Yeah. That's what he'll do. Yeah. Can you do video footage? In the casino, I think not. Oh, no, you can, <laughs> yeah. Who, who's going to be there with you for the meeting? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe Ian Wood. Ian Wood, you're my, you're my. Because mm-hmm. Ian Wood, when I did the marathon and I said I wouldn't wear an iPod, mm. he, he checked on me. Good. I was doing the marathon. And he goes, "Good, so you're not wearing that iPod, Oz." Oh, double seven over there. So Ian Wood, you're helping me out. Okay, here we're going to go. Red, black, black, red. Okay. Can't forget that. I might have to give you a call when I'm going in there just to remind me. I think, I think, you, why don't you take the portable? Can you record? <laughs> no. no, just pretend you're talking on the phone. You can't talk on the phone when you're in the casino. You can. Really? Yeah. Surely you can ring people. I don't think not. Well, read, what was it? Read, black, black, read. Okay. 160 bucks coming my way. Okay, John, what's your goss? Um, my goss is, what's the date today? So 23rd. 23rd. December. Yeah. Off of yeah, this show? Yeah. John, I don't know. What? <laughs> okay, here's what happened, team. We, we were wrapping up the show, and we had a, we, we, a pretty solid ending, wasn't it? Yeah. We had some good stories happening, smoking. It. It's a Sunday afternoon, 6.30 p.m. on a two days before Christmas. It's hot. John's <laughs> sweating <laughs> up a storm. So much so it's showing through his top. Yeah. And, uh, and, and getting, then it didn't record. Yeah. Oh, Disappointed. Do you know where I'm going for, for New Year's, Bevan? <laughs> Auckland, maybe? <laughs> maybe. Did you know that before? No. Do you know what the weather's going to do? Oh, it's going to be terrible in Auckland, John. And Auckland. It's a thing. I'm going to Auckland, so I'm going to Auckland, and it's uh, forecasters for, no joke, constant rain the whole time. Not good. We've got lots of kids, and it's going to be. So we're still going to have good times. I'm always the optimist. Well, no, because but you need just, to be. Because yeah. you're saying he's got six kids, some part of it, and 10 kids, another yeah, part. And it's all in one house. Uh, yes. Oh, you're in trouble. Yeah. If it's pouring rain, dead on board. Yeah. And it won't be your kid. And you'll be going, shut up, you little crude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's going to be good times. No, it is going to be good times. So, Bevan, my goss, uh, today is, uh, as we've said many, many times, this is the 20, <laughs> what day 23rd. Is it? Tommy got his uh, Christmas present day, a new bike. It's got gears and everything. And he's. Uh, you said it was a bit high. Yeah, it's a bit between of a ball, his legs. Bit of a ball breaker. <laughs> Tommy's. We, one of the bribes we try to use on Thomas is. Uh, <laughs> the bribes, great Is uh, if you don't sleep long enough in the morning, Tommy, you're going to stop growing. So you've got to keep. If you want to keep growing, you've got to stay in bed. You've got to stay in bed for long. It's 
bad. Oh, he's he's waking up too early. He's not getting enough sleep. What time does he go to bed? Um, seven, seven thirty. And he gets up at mm, could be five. Well, it's five still ten six. hours. Yeah, he needs more sleep. So obviously uh, not, John. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, so you, you you're going to create this complex that he's not going to grow. <laughs> yeah. So he's going to wake up in an adult. You're going to end up. You're, he's going to go to counselling. Yeah. Wow. It's going to be your fault. Be and you'll, and you'll come back to the show. It's going to be the least go, of his issues when he's not winning the 2024 <laughs> Olympics. It's not. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he got a bike and Felicity got Barbie dolls. Does Felicity. And I'm know, surprised you got Barbie dolls. Oh, no, Felicity loves her Barbies. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I and thought you might be one of those people who goes, oh, sexual, you know. No. Creating. You don't know me. No, I don't, you know, don't you. know me. No, and of course, I, I, and I said this on a ride this morning, Felicity was getting, got a Barbie doll and a Cinderella and Thomas gets a bike and I knew he was going to be, she got two presents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They it's don't like, get it, eh? They don't get it. Your present so, is worth a lot more than a Barbie doll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, John. So, yes, Bevan. I've really done this shafty on my daughter. Yeah. Because I got her an iPod. Oh. Did I tell you about this last week? No. So the problem was, John, iPods are rip-offs. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she wanted an iPod Touch, and she goes to me a while ago, Dad, can you get me an iPod Touch for Christmas? And, and I kind of didn't, I never say yes, mm. but, you know, I don't kind of say no either, and it's kind of pretty obvious. So I went to do my research for the iPod Touch. In New Zealand, $450. In America? In America, basically a lot less. Yeah, you should have got it when we were over there in Canada. Well, John, I, I should have got the Touch, and I tried to get the iPhone. So then what I did is I went on Facebook, and a good mate of mine called Robbie – He's coming back to New Zealand, or his mum's in America visiting him right now. She's coming back to New Zealand on Boxing Day. Mm-hmm. So I've got her to get me an iPhone, $400 cheaper for the iPhone. Exactly, yeah. $400, John. It's a small country. Yeah. And, uh, and my iPod, I think I ended up paying $160 cheaper, about 300 bucks for the iPod in New Z- from the States. But I've told Tyler, I said, babe, I'm not spending 450 bucks on a Christmas present, babe. I'm sorry, I love you lots, but that's just <laughs> ridiculous. And she's Gutted. She's absolutely gutted. She goes, well, oh, you could have got the, the last version. I wouldn't have mind. Oh, babe, it's too late. I've already bought you present. So she's, I've done the shafty on her. Oh, nice. Christmas morning or oh, Boxing Day. Because nice. I can't get it to a talk Boxing Day. But so what are you going to do on Christmas Day? A little picture, picture saying his, you're getting yeah. no pod tomorrow. Yeah. So she'll be pretty happy with that. Good. Nice. She won't mind motoring a day. Yeah. Yep. Uh, coming up in the new year, we've got our food. We'll be back next week on the sh- in the in studios. studios yep. uh, Have we already done this bit? Um, I think we did. Okay. Talked about the races. Okay, we've done it. <laughs> yeah, because we're just doing a, what, are you, what are you up okay. to? Uh, and Bevan's done his race and he's won it. Won it. And uh, he's now. If, if it's a peasant field. You've got to retire for good if you win it. If I win it, it. You go out on top. Okay, well. Yeah. Oh, but I think one day I might do another right, man. Okay. We have to win that too then. Okay. I'll just choose something like, yeah. what's a race that I guarantee? What's an Ironman race I could turn up to nowadays and still win? <laughs> yeah. Just, just win an Ironman no, race. No, 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 Ironman. I've never been distance. They'd be uh, like the Great Floridian. Did they get many past people, fast people there? That's no, actually pretty good, isn't go it? Go to a hits race, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Go to a nice hits venue in the States. So they do them at some nice Come places. Come on, Barry. Hook it up, hook your brother up. Yeah. There you go. You, we'll do a few shows there. Go to Napa Valley or something like that. Give me some of that horse money. I'll be able to get there. Yeah. Come on, Barry Sif. You're my best mate. Yeah, there you go. I'll come do it. And if I win, imagine the PR. That'll be front page of Triathlete Mag. Bigger than Texas. Bigger than Texas. Mm. Anyway, let's wrap it up. The last the last ending was so much better. It was. <laughs> it really was. My kids. We had the cat story in there. Yeah. yeah. You announced Epic Camp. I did, yes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, people, so I was riding this morning with Phil. He was loving my Epic Camp France jersey. 
and uh, and he he was he had a bit of uh, camp envy. He says, oh, "I want to come to Canada, but I'm like, Phil, it's not going to happen. It's too close. You have got a two year old and a five year old and, and a three year old. His his he's got three. He's screwed. Oh, once you get three, it's game over. Yeah, until the kids are at school. Um, so I said, well, we'll go to France. And I said, why don't we go in 2016? Because we're both turning 40, and we've got to do something decent on your 40th. So it became France. France 2016. People, it is happening. If you want to get on it. Uh, chance I'll probably go to the Alps. Pop me an email. Put you on the provisional list. I know it's four years away, but last one sold out in days. Yeah, this is going to be. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be really, really good, and it's going to be. Uh, and you get to celebrate my 40th birthday during the camp because I will. What will you do it. for your 40th? Well, if, if it works out. What about Belinda? They'll say this is part of the master plan. Uh, and Jen hasn't bloody gone for my master plan. I, I sent her a text. Said. Wait, wait for it, Jen. She hates my plans. <laughs> Hate your plans? Bloody John's got another plan. Um, so Phil and I will go over. We'll do the camp. As you do, you're athletes. Girls will fly over afterwards. They'll maybe go and come. France, how can they complain yeah, about that? Come in via Paris or London or something. Loving it. Have a few days there and then we'll go down to south of France or go Our to house. Italy or something like that for a couple of weeks. What a plan. And she didn't fall for it straight away. She said, oh, I'm not falling for it. I'm like, what? What's there to fall for? Yeah. She it's said, a- not without my kids. And I'm like, what? That's the point of doing it. Exactly. You hock the kids off. Exactly. But all that, and this is Phil's kids. They'll all be in school by then. It'll be sweet. So 2016, people, if you want to get on Epic Camp France, I know it's a long way out, but you could put yourself on the provisional list. Start saving now. If it's something you always wanted to do, it's going to happen. I didn't come tell my cat story. No. I don't think I will. Nah. It's too long now. Save it. Okay, I'll tell it next week. Yeah. <coughs> Let's wrap it up, John. I'm tired. I'm Russ. I'm Ando. Train hard. Train smart. Kika. We're so good at this show and we're so bad at Legends. I know. Legends Triathlon's out today. Oh, Legends of Triathlon. Who have we got? We have got uh, Graham Fraser. Get him on. We'll talk about that next week. Okay. Here we go. Have a good New Year's. Have a good recovery. Mm.